Hey, hello, hi, welcome to and are back to the Equitheory Podcast. I am your host, Jill Treese, and this week's episode is gonna be a long one uh, for several reasons, because A, I had a really big event that happened this weekend, and I want to talk about that a little bit before we dive into everything, and then I'm going to answer some of my patrons' questions. Um, If you don't know, there will be an ad here (laughs) shortly that gives you all the information about Patreon. And eventually, I will re-record the ad so it is shorter and also fits the format. But um, I just kind of wanted to give you guys an overview of what we'll be covering because, unfortunately, there's a character limit (laughs) on the titles for the episodes. So I can't include everything that we're going to be talking about. And sometimes, most of the time, people don't read descriptions. So I just thought I would let you guys know what this episode's going to be about. So the questions that my patrons asks Um, asked are going to be covering um, things like bridling resistance and bits, then newly developed aggression and or anxiety around food when training, uh, distractions during training, some grooming challenges, blanketing discomfort and cribbing, equine shivers, and mental health and pressure to ride and how those two play in together. So I do want to go ahead and say that question six, I believe, the last one in the series, there will be a bit of a trigger warning, but I will let you guys know if, um, you know, anything in that realm is a bit uh, too much for you mentally or emotionally. So just don't worry, it's not going to catch you off guard. I will let you know. And I strategically put it at the end of the episode. So that nobody gets taken off guard and we can cover sort of all of the horse things and then touch on um, the mental health relevant question. Um, so I hope that you guys are tuned in for a long one because I this is it's going to be long. <laughs> so we have six questions to answer and just about all of those questions have multifaceted uh, realms to delve into. So I think I think we just we just better roll the music and get started. What do you say? OK, three, two, one, go. All right, let's get this Patreon ad out of the way, and then we'll get going. Okay, three, two, one, go. Why do I keep counting? Okay, whatever. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next? Last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
So the last ad before we jump into the content is one where you can support me and the horses directly. If you're willing and able, check us out at Equitheory on your Patreon app or at patreon.com slash Equitheory. When you become a patron of the podcast, you can ask me questions that I'll answer on the podcast for just $5 a month. And at the $10 tier, you can receive merch and have access to live Q&A events, which means you get your questions answered in real time. And at the higher tiers, you have the option for phone call consults with me on air or privately, as well as access to online training with me, depending on your tier. Sounds like a lot of fun to me. (laughs) But lastly, you should know, should you decide to become a patron, you can cancel at any time or subscribe and unsubscribe as you please or as you're able. And if you can't support us through Patreon, no worries at all whatsoever. Listening alone is more than enough. I just want to say thank you to all the current and future patrons. Me and the ponies appreciate it endlessly. But anyway, I'm going to stop talking and we're going to get into the part where I talk about things that you're actually interested in. Alrighty, everyone. So I kind of just wanted to start off by touching on a recent event. So I was uh, just at a horse show this past weekend with my boss. And if you guys remember Professor Flitwick, he is the last horse I showed. (laughs) Um, I took him to um, his first like recognized event, beginner novice and competed him and we actually ended up winning, um, which was the first time I'd ever won anything. So it was a massive deal for me. And um, he's, he's incredible. And I was so excited for my boss this weekend, um, Sunny, for those of you who don't know, um, I live and work on her horse farm. And, um, you know, she just had me take him out because she hadn't been out in a while. And she was like, you know, I just want to have someone younger who bounces better, take him out. And so we, we did that. And then she spent like all this past year, um, working out with our good friend, um, who does Zoe's muscle therapy and mine. And, um, she's also a personal trainer and, uh, you know, we both worked with her for a while. I had to stop because I'm too busy and it's not at the top of my priority list, which is questionable, but we're working on that. (laughs) But, um, so she's been working really hard and, you know, going to as many lessons as she can. She's had him with a trainer um, you know, because I, I'm not, <laughs> I don't really specialize in traditional riding anymore and competition. So she's had him there. And also the trainer that she has him with is absolutely an incredible rider and just knows so much about biomechanics and is such an awesome trainer. And she, she coached me at the show that we went to. Um, so she's been working really hard and this weekend started off super incredibly. <laughs> like it was so awesome. Like we got there and took him, like took care of him, did all the things. And then on Saturday, um, her coach was, uh, had a conflicting ride. So she was riding while, um, Sunny was supposed to be warming up for her show and, or for her dressage test. And so I had to coach her and that made me very nervous (laughs) because, um, you know, I mean, I don't really work in, um, traditional riding anymore. And so it's a bit, I'm a bit out of practice and, um, but I coached her warm drop and everything was going really well. She went in and did her test. It had a rocky start, but they just, they absolutely knocked it out of the park. And she ended up on, I think like a 30, um, and you know, she's running starter, so it's, it's lower level, but, um, it, it was just, it was so awesome to finally see Sunny, like, um, you know, do so well and be so happy and thrilled. And they were in, they were tied for first after dressage and, um, she was just over the moon about it. And then time rolled around to run cross country 
And I was out by the water jump, which there are two different directions you can go at Holly Hill, which is the horse farm we were at. Um, and one direction goes all the way up to warm up where you do the start box and you start your course and where you finish. And there's the other direction where you can go out to the water fences where you can see most of the jumps. And I was taking pictures for her. And so I wanted to go out there and uh, do that. So I was hanging out there waiting and I was like, it's been a really long time and she hasn't come out yet. Turns out they were running behind anyway, which always happens. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I'm just standing out there waiting and um, I was watching a bunch of horses have stops at this one fence. And so I'm texting her trainer, like, make sure Sunny knows to ride this. And um then her trainer calls me and she's like, you need to go get Sunny's purse and her phone and come up to warm up because uh, Flit threw her and she has to go to the hospital. And like my heart just about fell out of my chest. And so I sprinted all the way with a walk break because homegirl's not fit. But I sprinted all the way to um, back up to her truck, grabbed her stuff, told everybody um, in the barn aisle and some of the dads like ran up to go help the EMTs and um, I got all our stuff and then ran back up to warm up with walk breaks again because <laughs> I can't run for that long. And uh, so we got up there and thankfully she was totally cognizant. She didn't hit her head or anything because, I mean, that lady has been through a lot. She has like um, her neck is fused. It looks like she has a pelum bit in her neck and she's got lots of hardware and she is just about as accident prone as I am. And and if you know how accident prone I am, you're like, wow. Um, so Anyway, she, um, what happened according to her and her trainer is that she was just walking him. She brought him down from a canter to a trot and Sonny said that he just seemed like he, like there was just a lot going on. There was some girl coming off course that was just woohooing and screaming over every single fence. And like, I just want to put it out there. That is so obnoxious. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I get it. Like, I know when things are finally going right and you're having a really good ride that you want to like praise your horse. But like, maybe let's not scream the whole way around. Like, I, I really get it. And I love the enthusiasm and I appreciate it. But it's it's distracting <laughs> for a lot of horses. And all of us know, being horse people, that, you know, loud noises and sudden sounds and all of that is um, not what horses are all about. So um, chances are when you're screaming on top of your horse, he's probably not reading that as, oh, my God, I'm so good. Like, I, I know there were a few times that when I ran cross country, I would, you know, be like, good girl over the fence. But that was it. <laughs> and uh, that probably was more alarming to Zoe than it was, uh, you know, comforting. <laughs> um, so like a little scratch on the withers and being like, good girl, you're so good. You got this. Like, keep it between you, you know, and I'm not blaming this rider. I, I wasn't there, but I'm not blaming them on uh, what happened with Flit and Sunny. But just be considerate of other people and like it's it's you're fine like <laughs> you can tell your horse they're good without announcing it to the entire showgrounds and also being considerate of your horse that that is really loud and surprising so um, you know, it's kind of like when people are in the show jump arena and they're coming off and they're like slapping the dog shit out of their horses. Um, and it don't get me wrong. It makes for great pictures. And, you know, this yelling and being like, Woohoo, you're so good. You're so great. Like, it's cool. It looks good on the video, whatever. But like, it's really 
unsettling for everyone else. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that's just my personal opinion. If you guys don't agree, you feel free to let me know. But um, I find it really distracting and probably not what the horse is reading. Um, and so anyway, um, what I was saying about the padding after the show jump rounds, you know, people think they're rewarding their horse, but the the action itself is probably the same as what you would do if he nipped at you in the cross ties. The horse is not reading that as, oh, I'm good. They read scratches, usually, depending on the horse, as the positive reinforcement, like the thing that's that feels good. Something that is a primary reinforcer to the horse is going to be scratches, not slaps. And you can call it whatever you want, a, a good job pat, you can use all the semantics, whatever, you're slapping the horse. If your arm is all the way back above your head and you're bringing it down with force onto your horse, it's it doesn't feel good. It just doesn't. And uh, you c- do it to a person. The same thing you do on your horse, do it to a person and see if they like it. It doesn't feel good. Um, and the same could be said about you know, the yelling. (laughs) But the thing about humans is we have an ability to understand the words. And unless you've paired an association with that much yelling um, on top of your horse, they probably won't um, appreciate that. So um, just throwing that out there, be considerate of other horses and riders. And if you want to praise your horse verbally, do it in a way that's going to be read as praise to the horse, not just, it's not just about you. And, um, So I don't know. I've always seen videos of people like screaming and I've heard it on cross country and I'm just like everyone around you is like, (laughs) and I'm not saying that you have to do things to appease other people, but it it is, it's probably not getting done what you want to get done. So just rethink the way that you're going about rewarding that. So anyway, um, tangent. But my point with that is that there was a lot going on. There were people yelling and woohooing and um, there's a lot going on in cross-country warm-ups. If you've never experienced one, there are horses running and jumping and there are people everywhere screaming and clapping for people coming across the finish line. And all of those things are not very conducive to horses being calm and peaceful. And um, Sonny said that it just felt like he was just an inflatable balloon, just like he just kept getting more and more and more. And she said she was bringing him down and she could feel him tensing. And she was like, "Okay, well, we probably just need to go, you know, back to work so he can like expend some of that energy and he's not being forced to be still, which I agree with. But it didn't work out the way she thought it would. And um, according to her and Alex, she, um, Sunny said she asked him to, um, you know, go up a gate, trot or canter. I can't remember what she said, but she said that was just the final straw. And that's what we call trigger stacking. So, you know, there's a lot going on and he's getting more and more amped. And then finally she asked him to go forward trying to help him, but it just, and that's where the horse's perception plays in and uh, context, especially because that behavior is not him being an awful, horrible horse, but he got nervous and he got scared. And then she tried to do what she thought was best to help him and send him forward. And it ended up just being the straw that broke the camel's back for his, um, you know, mental health. And he just blew up, quote unquote, out of nowhere. And that is where 
like I, it kills me when people say, oh, my horse did this out of nowhere. It never is. It is always, it it can be traced back. There's a hole in the training somewhere. Something is not going right. The horse was not calm and relaxed. And you guys listening to the episodes with me and Kane, like that is our primary focus on riding with positive reinforcement or just riding period is you need to make sure that the horse is relaxed and calm and confident. Otherwise you get those, oh, he just blew up out of nowhere. And the horse always has a reason. Behavior always serves a purpose, and it is driven by reinforcement. And he just couldn't take it anymore and just exploded. And so he threw a big buck and then did just a 180 spin. And on a horse that big, I mean, Flit is probably 17 hands. I mean, he's a big Frisian sport horse, um, so Frisian thoroughbred cross. And, um, (laughs) you know, me and Sonny were joking about it after that, like, thoroughbreds don't do that. <laughs> like They normally like you have some warning that they're about to spin or something. Quarter horses, on the other hand, those motherfuckers, they can turn like nobody's business out of nowhere. And apparently Flit also has that capability, even being so big. So she had no, no warning, no heads up, no time to prepare. He because I mean, they were just walking and she asked him to go forward anticipating that and he just threw a giant buck and then spun. So I mean, she's already off balance. And then the spin just absolutely launched her. And she luckily just landed on her hip. She didn't hit her head um, or her neck or anything like that. And she crashed on her left hip. And uh, then the day proceeded uh, for us spending, I don't know, probably from five until I think I got back to the hotel at midnight. So, um, you know, all that time spent in the hospital and she went in, um, and actually had surgery there in Louisiana and she's still there right now and, um, had some screws put in her hip. So, you know, um, I wouldn't suggest like sending her a message on Facebook. It's kind of like one more thing she has to respond to, but just, you know, keep her in your thoughts and, um, send her your positive vibes. If you're religious, pray, (laughs) like just anything to send her healing vibes because we're all worried. And the surgeons told us that there's not, um, you know, there's no certainty that her body will accept, um, you know, the screws and help her hip heal because sometimes they can just dissolve anyway. And so, um, I just, not the screws, her hip bone, I mean, and the tissues around it. So, um, just send her healing vibes. She's, she's doing well. She's in a lot of pain, but she is, um, she's coherent and she is alive and flit is okay. And so, you know, we just, I don't know, just keep her in your thoughts and, um, send her your vibes. (laughs) Um, I don't know how much that actually does, but I, I would like to think that putting, putting some good towards that situation would be helpful. Um, but anyway, so that is how my weekend went. I am very tired and exhausted because that is just not how I saw it going at all, especially after her being in first after dressage for the first time ever in her life. That was just absolutely devastating. And, It was just not a good weekend overall, but, um, you know, everybody is alive and safe now. So that is what I'm choosing to focus on. (laughs) Um, but anyway, I think like, I just want, I just wanted to like make that known. I know I talked about it on my Instagram a little bit, but, um, for my podcast listeners, I just wanted you guys to hear that so that more people can maybe, um, you know, have sunny on your mind, but, um, 
Anyway, sorry, I gotta readjust my hair clip and we're gonna get into these patron questions. So, um, you know, like I said in the ad, if you want to become a patron at the $5 tier, you can join, send your question, and then when I get to it, cancel it. Um, I'm normally pretty quick about it. Um, like, I've gotten behind on them lately because of the Writing with Positive Reinforcement series, but um, I will get to it, I promise, and if I don't have time, I'll make accommodations um, to help you out anyway, but... Uh, yeah, so you can do that, and if you uh, at the five dollar tier, you can send one question, and at the ten dollar tier, you can send as many as you want, and then up from there, you can have phone calls and all that good stuff. So, um, you know, just be aware of that. It's just Patreon.com/EquiTheory. You can find it pretty easily. Um, but yeah, so let's get into these bad boys. So, question number one comes from patron Julie. Um, she says, I am looking for guidance on bridling with a bit using positive reinforcement. I have a four-year-old off-the-track thoroughbred mare that I got back in May. As soon as I got her, I knew I wanted to do more positive reinforcement with her thanks to your podcast. Yay! <laughs> uh, she picked it up so fast. She targets different objects, knows the rules of the game, which for those of you who don't know is um, manners, um, like not being pushy and asking for treats and being muggy or whatever. Um, anyway, continuing walks, hacks and backs on my cue walks, halts and backs on my cue, even taught her to lower her head into her halter and hold it there until I'm ready to pull it over her ears. She's awesome. Um, anyway, I wanted to teach her a similar technique when bridling because she raises her head up when I go to place the bit in her mouth. She doesn't get angry or toss her head and she doesn't pin her ears or anything. She just simply raises her head and pokes her nose into the sky. When she does that, I lower the bridle to start again and she'll lower her head into it like she does with the halter. I click and treat and repeat this several times and then ask again to place the bit into her mouth and she will raise her head. I tried to break it down further into more steps by clicking when she puts her lips on the bit, but she still raises her head when I attempt to actually place the bit between her lips. She is a pretty happy mare, lovely, and follows and listens to my cues leading up to, and after asking to accept the bit, it's a simple egg butt happy mouth, double jointed with a copper roller, practically new with no substantial bit marks. I feel like it's a pretty gentle bit. It's crossed my mind that she just may hate the bit, but if you have any other thoughts, a uh, couple steps, uh, I could take to make the bridling more pleasant. I'd love to hear. Um, some background info that might be good is she had a pre-purchase exam in June and had her teeth done then and checked again last week. Um, I treated for ulcers because <laughs> she's an off the track thoroughbred. Um, treated her with a full cycle, 30 days plus a 10 day taper of omeprazole. Okay. End of question. So first of all, just on that last note, there is an episode on the feed room chemist about equine ulcers. Um, and, she, um, I always forget her name, but the host of the podcast talks about why omeprazole um, might be not the best route to go. And generally, ulcers are like obviously treat them, but the the reason that the ulcers happen doesn't go away when you just treat them. So I've talked about it extensively, and I plan to do a whole episode on it. Um, I did one a while back, but it's kind of an uneducated episode. But um, Essentially, it's usually diet and lifestyle. So like being stalled for extended periods of time, um, not having access to constant forage and buddies, that sort of thing can really contribute. And having a really high sugar, high starch, which is NSC, a high NSC diet contributes. And when you resolve those things and make sure that they're happy and not stressed or in pain in their ridden work or whatever you do with them, um, 
that's what fixes or prevents and uh, maintains not having ulcers. So, um, you know, it's great to treat with omeprazole, but you have to make sure you're taking those other measures. Otherwise, they'll probably just come back. I think it's something like um, 60% of, um, you know, all performance and leisure horses. I think it might be 30% of leisure horses, but 90% of like race horses. And I don't know the statistics, but there is a 30, a 60 and a 90%, but especially performance and race horses and stuff like that, you're, you're pretty much guaranteed. Um, but anyway, so with this, I want to first address the bit because a simple egg butt happy mouth double jointed with a copper roller. Okay. So some horses, uh, I recently read this on Twitter actually, and that's something I hadn't considered before because generally we're told that the thicker the bit, the softer it is and the thinner the bit, the harsher it is because of distribution, um, of pressure. And that makes sense, but it, it it's more nuanced than that. And things like a hot dog bit, um, that's just like the straight rubber, um, you know, just the regular rubber bit. Um, those are really fat bits and the interdental gap for horses is not really big enough for that. So, um, the place between their top jaw and their bottom jaw isn't wide enough for really thick bits. So that could be contributing to this. So you kind of have to find like the middle ground and, um, you know, sometimes the happy mouth bits, they're great because they're soft, but sometimes it can be too thick. And especially having, um, you know, this bit sounds like it has a lot going on. Some horses love double jointed and some horses don't. Copper generally is a, um, a metal that horses really like and it increases salivation. Um, but I would really say that like, maybe play around with it a little bit. I know Zoe, um, she was really interesting to figure out the bidding situation because um, she hated <laughs> double joints. Like I, I always wanted to put her in a double jointed bit because everyone said they were so much softer and they don't scrape the roof of their mouth. Like, um, you know, the nutcracker effect of a single jointed bit. Um, they they can scrape the roof of their mouth. And she just would not handle a double jointed bit for whatever reason, she always went horribly in them. And that's why I ended up experimenting with the leather bit and things like that. Um, but I finally found the bit that she goes best in and it's the Nishule, <laughs> Nishule. It's N-E-U-E-S-C-H-U-L-E, I think. Um, that brand, it's a very expensive, ridiculous brand, um, but it's a Demi-Yankee bit. Um, Demi-Yankee, those are two separate words. Um, but what it does, it's, it's a loose ring and I, I cannot for the life of me, and I would like to write them an angry letter and say, please make this available in an egg butt form because Zoe, like, I really don't like loose ring bits. Like I know they're like the best bit and everybody loves them, but loose rings have a tendency to, um, you know, if you pull the rein, um, on one side, um, the bit slides in the horse's mouth. And when it does that, um, the outside, like, so if you're turning left and you pull on the bit, it's going to slide through the horse's mouth a little bit, unless you like just keep pulling on your outside rein, which it depends on your skill level and what you are asking. Um, but the bit can slide through and then it presses the, where the 
actual mouthpiece meets the ring. And when that ring slides through the hole in the mouthpiece, it can actually pinch their lips. And oh my god, it was so annoying (laughs) to ride with that because Zoe flips her head in it. But it's the only mouthpiece that when it's straight, and it's consistent, and it's not pinching her, she was great. But if it pinched her at all, just instant head flip. And so um, but the the mouthpiece in that bit, it looks like a double joint when it's bent. Um, so a double jointed bit is it has two pieces um, in the mouth that kind of come up like the sides of a pyramid. And then instead of just connecting at the top, like a single jointed bit, like there's only one joint um, in this bit, there are two joints there. And there's a middle piece. And in Julie's bit, uh, the patron, uh, there's a, a copper roller. And um, sometimes rollers are good for horses that have busy mouths and other times they're bad. So, I mean, I'm not really I I like to keep things very simple with bits. Um, And sometimes all the gadgets get a little bit messy, but it's up to your personal horse. So um, I don't really have like an overarching (laughs) opinion on types of bits. It's really individual dependent. Cause like I said, for Zoe, you know, the single or the double jointeds are supposed to be the softer ones. And she hated them. Like was, I couldn't ride her in them. And so this Demi Anki bit, what it does is, um, let me think. So, you know how like, um, like a flower vase, it kind of has those curving sides. So imagine, um, or maybe if you've ever seen like a graph of a, um, I don't know if parabola is the right word, but like a bell graph, like if you can look up a bell graph or a bell curve right now, that's what it, maybe just that. Okay, fine. We're going to roll with that. Sorry, trying to find a metaphor. Um, so a like a bell kind of has the sides if you start at the bottom where it starts out flat and then it curves up and then it curves kind of flat up at the top. Um, that's what the bit looks like. Also, you could just look up the Demi Yankee bit and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> God, I'm so bad at explaining things. Um, but I'm visual, so I, I'd like to try and give people a picture. Um, but that is what she goes in. And it it looks and kind of works like a double-jointed bit does. Like each side moves semi-independently of the other and it doesn't have that um, roof-of-the-mouth scraping effect. And some horses have shallower... Um, mouths. So um, having kind of like almost a ported single joint is really what worked best for her. And I mean, I went through probably 10 bits with her and my horse before that I went through 10 bits with him like it and he ended up going in the Myler combo bit. It was like a hackamore three ring thing. And I would probably never put a horse in that now. But that was the only thing I could handle him in, um, which (laughs) That's a whole nother conversation, but um, every horse is different and um, you just kind of have to find what they like and listen to them. And this bit might be too thick for her. Um, And so, or she might not like the roller and it sounds like you've got her teeth pretty well sorted. So um, I wouldn't be too worried about that. Um, When you're starting to work on bridling, the first kind of steps I would take would be to make the bridle as simple as possible. You've already done the work with the halter, which is fantastic. And you're pulling it over her ears, which is part of what you have to do with a bridle. So that's great. Um, then with, um, you know, like the whole goal of this is to break it down into pieces so that the horse can solve the puzzle themselves and you don't have to, um, really do anything yourself. You don't have to make it happen. The horse is working collaboratively with you. Um, so with that, um, 
you've got the halter piece put together. Um, I would take away the noseband. Personally, I'm not a noseband person anyway, full disclosure. I don't like nosebands. I don't really see the purpose. They don't make the bridle stay on. You can pull a bridle off without a noseband. Um, and their whole purpose is to keep the horse's mouth shut. I think at one point they were to keep the bridle more secure, like for fox hunting and trails and stuff like that. So that if it got hooked on a branch, the bridle would be less likely to come off. We don't really encounter things like that in um, regular everyday kind of riding. And in the Western industries, nobody hardly ever rides in a noseband. And I think it, it makes the horse's face look better. Uh, so that's just my personal opinion. And nosebands tend to um, be used to keep the horse, um, keep the horse's mouth shut. And uh, they make the bit more severe because if you apply pressure and the horse can't get away from that pressure by opening his mouth to relieve it, um, then the bit is obviously going to be harsher. So um, but that's my spiel on nosebands. I, I plan on making a full in-depth dive into bits and uh, kind of like doing my controversial tax series again on the podcast as well as a video eventually. I don't know. My schedule is ridiculous. But um, anyway, that's that tidbit. But I would start with this without the noseband so you just don't have one more thing to deal with. And then you can, if you want to ride in a noseband, you can work back up to um like adding that later. But right now, make it as simple as possible. It's just a head stall and uh, the bit. So, um, and I mean, the brow band typically doesn't do anything. So, I mean, like take it off or leave it, play around and see what works best for her. Um, but um, what you're saying in the question is that you have her lower her head and click and treat several times and then ask to place the bit in her mouth and then she raises her head. So I'm not sure how you're asking, but it sounds like, because you said, when I attempt to actually place the bit between her lips, she'll raise her head. So um, my, like, I, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but the way I have always gone about um, teaching horses to self-bridle is I don't ever actually touch the bit. I just, I hold the bridle open and they place their head in it. And um, what happens when you um, increase your criteria slowly and it's done well and kind of, um, I guess it's kind of shaping, um, you, like the horse, when you don't click for the thing that's been working, sometimes they'll, like if they're pressing a button and they press the button and you don't click, they'll be like, okay, I'm pressing the button. Do you see me pressing the button? And that's kind of the logic I use with doing the bridling. So I'll have the horse sort of target the bit and touch the bit a few times. And then um, once they've really got that down and it's really consistent, um, I'll present the bridle and just hold it open. I'm holding either side of the um, head stall and just holding it out and open. And the horse places their nose on the on the bit and then sometimes they'll like touch it and then look at you like did I do it and then if you just give it a second and you have to be really really careful with this especially if you're pretty novice at um, clicker training because you really don't want to create frustration because you might just end up with a horse that's like screw you and if you're not getting it then um, the targeting behavior might not be strong enough um, but you can start asking for the horse to touch the bit for longer but generally what happens, especially with horses that know about bits, um, they like they, they've been ridden in the past, they know what they're supposed to do with it. They know what happens. So their next guess when they touch it is usually going to be 
perhaps biting it, um, which is kind of where extinction and the frustration response might help you a little bit. But you have to be really careful that you're not making it too difficult. Because if you ask for too much all at once, you're just going to end up with a really frustrated animal. And that's never the goal. So if you hang on to the bridle and have the horse touch it and you don't click and you just withhold for a second and see what they offer. Usually they'll put their lips around it or their teeth around it and bite it and then click that and then see if you can get that a few more times. If not, back up and restart. Um, and maybe you want to teach the horse to hang on to a towel first. Um, a lot of people love to teach horses to fetch. I haven't ever gotten around to doing that, but um, you can teach them to hang on to an object, and that might be a good first step, so it's already in their behavioral repertoire. I've yet to experience this because I have horses that um, have always been ridden and have experience with that, so um, it's kind of been an unnecessary step, but for a horse like this that might be a little resistant, um, you know, maybe teaching her to hang on to a cloth or pick up a hoof pick or a stick or something, like any of those things... Um, that could be a good first step. So it's not just the bridle. If she has a problem with it, that might just, um, you know, complicate things. So it wouldn't be a podcast without a burp. <laughs> um, so then once you get to the point where she's biting the bit, um, you know, then you can lift a little bit and then click for that, take the bit out, treat, and um, you can keep going. Um, and usually the next step I take is once I'm able to like lift the bit without the head raised response, um, then um, or I might just treat, I might click and treat while the bit is kind of lifted in their mouth. Um, so they're chewing around it and they get used to that, but it's not strapped to their face. Um, so then you can work up to tie or like not tying it, but where it's secured around their ears and things like that. And just do one ear at a time, take it off, um, click and treat. And the whole time her head needs to be low. And if it's not, then, um, you need to uh, go back a step and really work on making the low head part of your criteria. And, you know, when you go up a step, the head will probably raise because you've changed something. And so you have to expect less, um, but then work up towards. So like when you have her take the bit in her mouth and um, you've gone from her just touching it to taking the bit in her mouth, um, she might raise her head a little, but wait to move on to the next step until her head uh, is consistently staying low. And then you can work up from there. So I hope that answered that question. And if anybody else out there is dealing with bitted issues, um, really follow what Julie did and make sure that you've treated for um, the teeth and ulcers and things of that nature, because those can be really off-putting for horses. Um, also make sure that the next steps that what the bit predicts, because bits often predict riding or lunging or something of that sort, be sure that what it's predicting is not aversive to the horse. Make sure that they like what comes after that. And sometimes that might just mean you take a month off and just work on bidding and, um, you know, just going about your regular training session, but now the horse has a bit in. Another possible alternative is bright, uh, not bridalist, bitless, um, or bridalist really. I mean, try something else, see what else she likes. Um, you know, I wouldn't recommend riding in a halter, um, for reasons me and Kane talked about in the last couple of episodes, but um, you know, you can try a bunch of different options that might be more comfortable for her and then work on training the ridden behaviors you want in 
that setup. But I would also try a different bit. It seems like this one might be a little bit problematic for her. But um, there's also a possibility that she just has an aversive association to bits. Um, but and then that would be where you just have to counter condition and work through it, like I listed um, just a moment ago. Um, but yeah, I hope that answered that question. So I'm going to go ahead and move into um, the second question. I'm going to take a drink first. <sighs> Talking a lot. Um, so question two comes from uh, patron Grace. Um, she asks, four months ago, I got a two-year-old mare named Pigeon. She was very sweet and nice to work with. The only th thing was that she did not want to lead next to um, or slightly behind me. It took me three days of positive reinforcement to get her excited to be next to me, a.k.a. lots of scratches and treats. <laughs> she now lunges at liberty for me, only uh, a little since she's two, but she's always eager and loves to chase me, etc. Um, at present, Pigeon has hit a growth spurt and is now almost 15 hands and very chunky, typical quarter horse. Over the course of a week, she's become increasingly food anxious when I treat, grabbing it out of my hand as fast as possible, um, or cupped hand, which is important. Um, not sure why. Her, uh, three pasture mates always stand outside the arena to watch what's going on. I've been teaching her head away for treating, but this started happening before this. So she's also become slightly aggressive when I'm asking her to follow or walk around me, pinned ear, shaking her head, high tail, plus coming closer to me in the circle, turning her rear end in. Before this started, I would ask her to keep going forward and away, but obviously it hasn't done anything. Today, I was asking her to follow me at a slow walk, head next to my shoulder, and she uh, she pinned her ears, started trotting, and shouldered into me, turned her butt towards me, I have to say, I want the treat now. Um, I turned the other way and kept walking, uh, this time watching her over my shoulder. She turned with me and once again as if to run into me, but this time bucked and pushed her rear towards me. Keep in mind she's almost 15 hands and this keep if this keeps happening, it's going to get dangerous and she's close enough to kicking me already. I don't know how to correct this without using negative reinforcement and this is the only time she's ever been aggressive towards me. Not when I feed or brush or anything, which is why I'm so concerned. Any tips you could give me would be greatly appreciated. So first of all, yes, this is a dangerous situation. And uh, this will, like, you have to fix this. Um, because I don't want either of you getting hurt because you're trying to do something that's better for your horse. Um, you know, not better comparatively to negative reinforcement. But the reason most people get into positive reinforcement is because, um, you know, of the connection you get with it. And, um, you know, it just it has a lot of benefits and wanting to try something new and then having this happen can be really discouraging. So I appreciate that you're reaching out and asking for help rather than just being like, you know, fuck clicker training. This has made my horse dangerous and pushy, um, which is the conclusion a lot of people come to. But um, the good news is it's not a particularly complicated fix. Um, like you said, she's not aggressive naturally and she's not aggressive around like feed time or brushing or anything like that. So it's isolated which means it's it's in the training. So that's that's good because you don't have all these other variables to deal with. Um, so it's actually not bad, and I get why you're concerned, but it's actually kind of a good thing. Um, so my first um, kind of instinct towards what I want to tackle is um, earlier in the message, Grace says that she now lunges at liberty for me and we only do it a little bit because she's just two, um, which is, yeah, don't do a lot of lunging with a two-year-old. Um, but she's always super eager to please and loves to chase me, etc. So chasing and working with positive reinforcement, both of those things for both, like most species of animals are engaging the seeking system, which is like 
really, really fun, good times. And the seeking system uh, has a lot of really awesome um, neurotransmitters and hormones associated with it. And you get a lot of the feel good stuff going on. And so it's great. But chasing can be really frustrating for horses. Um, So I have experienced the opposite with Zoe, actually. So lunging, she like when I have her going around me in a circle, she has a tendency to make kind of the grimmest expression. And part of that for us, I believe, is um, due to some pain somewhere. I'm starting to wonder if she's got some caudal pain um, in her heels. Um, But that's a whole separate issue. But interestingly, she um, when I jog away from her, she usually will trot towards me with a very happy expression. Mac, on the other hand, is another horse I worked with. He would pin his ears. He did not like that um, because you're kind of like their food source running away from them. And they're like, hey, what the heck? And um, it can be frustrating. Also, um, you know, kind of having a moving target, like when you're just using your body, it's a little ambivalent and unclear. And I don't know what you're doing to get her to stay uh, or to move forward and stay out around you, like you said. Um, But sometimes a lot of that, if it's just a lot of really high energy, you can get too many emotions and you can kind of get over threshold, like I was talking about what would happen with flit, um, they can kind of just build until they do what you said with the bucking. So for now, I would definitely say, let's take a step back and maybe even work in protected contact for a while um, so that you're safe and you have no chance of getting kicked because that is not <laughs> not the goal that needs to be avoided at all cost. And I know people balk at um, working in protected contact because it you know, you're like, oh, well, I want to spend time with my horse. I want to be around them. and I can't even be in the same pen with them. It's just for a limited amount of time, just so you guys can work through the issue and then get to a point where it's safe and you know it's safe and, um, you know, where you can really predict your horse because this is a super young horse and she's still growing and learning and developing. So, you know, it's kind of hard to know who they are at that point. And um, I'm experiencing that with our babies too. It's really difficult to like... Because they're, they're pretty predictable, but it's like 90% instead of 100. Like with Zoe, it's usually 100% predictable, which I realize is um, sort of ironic that I said usually 100% predictable. Anyway, so I would for now stop having her chase you. Um, if that has contributed to this in any way, I would just give that a rest for a little while. And I would go back to working in protected contact and I would start using a target because... I uh, nowhere in your message have you mentioned targeting and it's just kind of following you and walking around you which makes sense because that's how you started because she wouldn't walk beside you and was kind of like walking in front of you and all of that so it makes sense but I think the clearer way to do it is to use a following target Um, so if you've done target training with her you might use something else or a different cue like uh, me and Kane talked about it in the writing episodes um, that maybe you say target for following and you say touch for stationary touching. Um, And that way you have some ability for the horse to distinguish what is being asked. Because I noticed when I first started working with Zoe um, with positive reinforcement, she would pin her ears and have this really nasty facial expression when I would ask her to touch but follow something. So I would first have her touching the target and then I would have her follow it. 
And um, so this thing that she's trying to touch so she can get reinforcement is constantly moving away from her. It pissed her off. She was like, I can't reach it. And then she would start going faster and faster. And so she didn't she didn't get it. And so um, you have to build up to doing things like that because it can create a lot of frustration for the horses, which is what I think you're experiencing here. So maybe go back to targeting and use the word like touch and for that, and then, um, you know, maybe you say target when you're asking her to follow the target with her nose, just even standing, just have her follow the target with her nose and click before she touches it and treat for that. And then maybe after a few repetitions of that, you work up towards um, she takes a step and follows it. And then you can build from there once she's got the hang of the fact that you are saying target, not touch. The goal is not to touch it, but to follow it. And uh, that way you can slowly start building in duration. And I would do that all in protected contact. So you are on the opposite side of the fence as her. And then you can work up to um, being in there with her and doing circles and things like that. Because like I said, I, I do not want you guys to get hurt um, because that is a very dangerous situation to have a horse kicking out at you and turning her rear end towards you because that like having pin ears, shaking her head, high tail and, um, you know, kind of coming into your space and turning her rear end towards you is all an exhibition of frustration to me. Um, at least that's how I would read that is that like, oh, my God, I can't get it, you know, like just click and treat already. And I don't know that it's necessarily I want the treat now so much as it's like, I don't know what you want. You're frustrating me. And um, the language signs and calming signals um, of horses book by Raquel Dreisma is um, Dreisma is um, she talks about the turning the haunches to you is I don't want to interact with you right now. It's I'm a very frustrated, um, sometimes comparable to a middle finger, <laughs> other times comparable to just shutting the door and being like, I just, I need a break. And it's, it's a healthy thing. And it's great that she's able to express that, but the bucking cannot continue. That is, it, I'm all for horses expressing themselves and I'm not advocating for punishing it, but you need to fix what is causing it because punishing her for bucking is only going to frustrate her more and it's not going to solve the issue. And then you're just going to have a confused and aggravated and, uh, you know, if it progresses, potentially shut down horse. And I'm not, I'm not saying all of this to scare you. Um, you know, a lot of people do that and it quote unquote works, but, um, I think that the best way to proceed is to really work on cleaning up that following behavior because it might just be too frustrating for her. I went through the same thing with Zoe. She never like bucked at me um, or turned her rear towards me, but I could see it on her face. And I think that might be the difference is that instead of keep asking for more, like you said, when she um, turned her haunches towards you, you kept walking and then you got this really high energy. I need to catch up. And also you're frustrating me. Um, and I think that's where the butt came in. So usually when I notice that Zoe's getting really frustrated, we stop and we bring everything back down. I ask her to do behavior she's good at and I know she can get reinforced for. And while I'm, you know, cueing her and reinforcing her for things like that, I'm coming up with a better way um, to ask in a more clear way uh, what I want of her. So you know, like if, if this happened with Zoe and she w I noticed she was pinning her ears and shaking her head, I would immediately stop, like dead in my tracks, stop and cure for something that 
you know, she was good at. And arguably, you could say that using the cue might reinforce that head shaking behavior. And it might. um, But I, I would say you need to get out of that one situation and, you know, just kind of take a reset and, um, you know, start over and maybe just get out of the situation if you can. Um, and then, uh, like do it safely. Maybe you have her, um, you know, target your fist and just say touch Um, If you're a couple paces in front of her and then she walks, touches it, you click treat and then you walk a couple paces while she's chewing and hold out your fist and say touch. And when she touches it, click treat until you can get out of the fence and then go into protected contact work and then start over from there. Um, You know, there are a lot of things you can do, but I just really want you to be safe because this is the thing that turns people off from positive reinforcement. And it's also the thing that makes people end up in dangerous situations. Um, And it's not because the horse is bad or she has evil intentions coming for you or that horses can't be worked with food. She's just getting frustrated. I mean, imagine working with a two-year-old child and you're asking something that's too hard. They might pick up the toy and throw it at you. Um, A lot of two-year-olds end up hitting for similar reasons. They get frustrated because they don't understand and then they don't have the ability to emotionally regulate and bring themselves back down and then you end up with an explosion like that. So you can have compassion for it and understand where it comes from, but that compassion and understanding needs to guide you on the path to figuring out how you can ask it better and differently in a way that makes sense to the horse. And um, because it sounds like it might just be a case of lumping, like you're just asking for too much. And she's like, I I don't know what we're doing here. And I'm really bad about this uh, with Zoe is I'll get like really excited and just start asking for more and more and more and more. And then by before I know it, the training situ- or session has gotten away from me and we're just all over the place. And then she just starts giving me random behaviors because I'm being all over the place. And so, you know, maybe just sit down with a notebook and break it all the way down and, uh, you know, go step by step from there. But... Yeah, I would definitely start in protected contact. It might take, you know, two sessions. It might take a week. It might take a month. But I would not go back into working in with her. Like, I mean, obviously, you can halter her and take her out, take her to, you know, her stall or the grooming area or what have you, whatever else you have to do with her. But if you're working with positive reinforcement for right now, I would say um, if you're going to ask her to do the following behaviors, I would say that needs to be done in protected contact until you are absolutely confident that that is not going to happen again. And you need to be very aware of her facial expressions because that's the first sign. And that's where, um, you know, people get kicked and bitten is usually because the horses, you know, they've got triangle eyes, their nose might scrunch up, um, they might have a dead expression or a half-lidded expression, Um, they will pin their ears or um, kind of hold them back, Um, their temple might sink in a little bit or they might grit their teeth and you can see it in their cheek. Um, All of those are predictors that the horse is about to have an issue. And if you ignore those signs at the beginning, then you end up with a, um, you know, an explosive animal that is like, you're not listening, you know, like a child would. So I hope that, um, 
that helps that and gives you some confidence that um, like it's a very isolated situation and um, I have confidence that you can fix it because I mean, look at everything else you've done. So I think, I think you've got it, um, you know, just clean it up and uh, go back to protected contact, make sure it's safe and you filled in all the holes in the training and be on guard in the future for if you see any slight changes in her facial expression, you need to stop and reevaluate what's going on and make sure that you're not being frustrating or confusing or um, raising her anxiety in any way. Because the goal of all of this is to create a happy, healthy and confident horse. And um, if she's not, that's where we start to get issues. Um, so anyway, now we can move on to question numero three, which comes from patron Peyton. So Peyton asks, first, I mostly like to work with Falcon out in his paddock and sometimes he gets distracted by other things going on. If I give him a cue and he gets distracted mostly by bikes on the road, should I give him the cue again? If so, how much time should I wait between between trying to requeue or in some cases giving a hint. So this is a really common thing that a lot of people deal with, myself included. And um, I mean, it depends. It's kind of like if you're talking to somebody and they don't really hear you because they're looking at something or their phone or off in the distance, anything distracting. Um, so I think it's fair to requeue, but um, it's also important to distinguish if it is perhaps a displacement or calming signal. Um, Sometimes it can be an indication, like we talked about, I think, in the last question about, um, you know, trigger stacking. And obviously, I'm not saying that to scare anybody, but it uh, it can be a context clue um, depending on where you're working. Like if you notice the horse is getting kind of amped or moving around a lot and then they're looking off in the distance, that would indicate to me that the horse is a little anxious or worried. But if, um, you know, you're just working and they're like, oh, what's that? Um, then, you know, that's something. It could also be an indication that the training is not particularly interesting um, or something is uncomfortable to the horse and they're like not really all the way there with you. There are a lot of different ways you can look at it. And I think that's where, like I said, the context is really important because if, um, you know, it's not going to be the horse is distracted just because, you know, he's distracted in every single case, it could be any of those things that I just listed. So, um, if it's purely just, oh, something's going on, um, then I would just give them a minute to look around and just take a breath yourself and recenter, check your body, whatever, and um, then go ahead and requeue when you feel like the horse has kind of joined you mentally again. And um, that way you, <laughs> you're being fair, you know, um, because if the horse is like, wait, what'd you say? And you don't requeue, then it, it might not make sense. But um, if it's, getting distracted, if he's getting distracted a lot, um, you know, that might be something to see if you can work in a different area to get those behaviors really strong before you come back to the distracting area. Kind of like me and Kane were talking about with the trail riding, um, you know, build up to it so that um, those behaviors are really strong and make sure that the horse is interested and can be successful. And um, yeah, so I'm all for you know, making things as clear as possible. And if you genuinely, you'll be able to tell. And if you genuinely feel like the horse is just like, oh, something's going on, <laughs> then, uh, you know, I think requeuing is fine. And, um, you know, just kind of wait till the horse checks back in with you, looking at you or puts an ear back on you or something. And, um, 
as far as giving a hint, that really only comes into play when the horse is like maybe not understanding, in which case I would recommend going back a step in what you're asking and then seeing if the hint still, you know, like would serve a purpose in uh, clarifying things like with the horse and the bridling and the bidding. Um, something that you might want to do to give a hint would be like earlier I said to train them to pick up like a brush or something and maybe you attach a word to that like take or fetch or something and then uh, when you go back to the bridle you could use that same word to have the horse um, take the bit if that makes sense Um, and like as far as like visual hints like if you were asking the horse to back and they got distracted and leaned into them that might just kind of add to the stress you know if you just like leaned your body towards them um you know because they're like i'm looking at something but my owner's also doing something so i would just kind of like give it a beat and then um you know just let them look at whatever's you know got their attention and uh let them settle and bring themselves back down before they have to deal with also trying to figure out what you want while they're um worried about whatever's going on in the environment Um, Okay, so Peyton's second question is, I figured since Falcon is off taking a break from me grooming at Liberty in his paddock, this is the perfect time for me to write this question, especially especially since I always forget my questions as soon as I get home. So (laughs) this was written real time. Uh, Okay, so Falcon's always been a super sensitive horse. He's 23. We tested him for Cushing's last spring and he came back negative. Yay. It's starting to cool off here in upstate New York. So he's got more pep in his step. But today I came out and hung out to get treats, and then he went for a run and play. He had a good-ass time sprinting around and then came up to me and my cone to start a clicker grooming session. I have an orange plastic cone that he touches while I groom or for when I need him to stand. We recently did a full ulcer treatment, three tubes, 12 days of doses, and he's been so much better but is still sensitive. He loved getting curry today, but I think he's still shedding his summer coat. But once I started hard brushing, he walked away. He came back five-ish minutes later, and I switched to my soft brush, and he still immediately walked away. Wasn't sure if you had any ideas. I would like, uh, or I would understand if he walked away as soon as I started currying, but he enjoyed the curry and then not the hard brush. Like, why am I, dude? <laughs> More context, if you want, lol, I didn't get a good brush in with the soft brush before he walked away, so maybe he didn't know I switched brushes. I was going back to him, um, going to hack him in his bareback pad today if he eventually wants. I'm fine with not doing it, you know? Um, so it's not like he sees my saddle or bridle and is anticipating a work ride. Okay. So yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) Um, so some horses really like scratches and, um, you know, the deep scratches and a curry might, um, kind of, I don't know, imitate that in a way. And then the hard brush, um, it's possible that it's just uncomfortable and it's not working like, um, it's a bit different from the curry. And I don't know, I would just kind of stay away from that one. Maybe you could use an alternative. Like, um, I don't know, some people use Shoshin, obviously, you don't want to do that where the saddle goes, but that way you can get the uh, all the dirt to kind of come off or lay down um, after you get it all up with the curry and then just sweep it off with the soft brush. That's typically what I do, because Zoe also really does not appreciate a hard brush. And there was a time where I could not even brush her with a soft brush without getting stompy feet, a tail swish, and ear pinning. And, um, you know, obviously that was ulcers, like 100%. And uh, we got that all sorted out. And now she um, is okay with brushing. But 
Um, you know, I have to be careful with what brushes I use where. Like I can use the hard brush more on her legs and um, maybe on her hindquarters, but not really on her barrel or shoulder. I always opt for a soft brush in those areas um, and up by her face and neck. It's just she doesn't really like the way it feels when it's um, really stiff. So maybe just nix that brush or find a different one that's maybe a little bit softer, but is still like kind of a dandy brush. And that way, um, you just kind of mitigate that. But, um, you know, I think we talked on the live Q and a that we did, uh, this October about, um, you know, ulcer treatments and stuff like that and counter conditioning and all of that. And I know Peyton was there. (laughs) Um, so, um, you know, it's tricky with ulcers because like I said earlier, um, sometimes it's, it's other factors that make the ulcers kind of bounce back, but it sounds like he's in a very low stress environment. Um, but it's still possible that those are going on. Um, I can't remember what Peyton said about her, um, like stalling situation, but typically New York doesn't have a ton of room and it's colder and there tend to be more stalling, um, situations. And it's possible if he doesn't have enough hay forage kind of thing, then, um, you know, it might not, uh, he might still be experiencing some of that. Um, but usually when horses that have been treated for ulcers and have everything else in place, all the protocols and whatnot, um, and they, uh, oh my God, I lost my train of thought. Um, once you have all those protocols in place and, um, you have treated for ulcers, uh, they still have the memory of it being painful and they're still anticipating it. And for the curry, he's like, oh, this is good scratches. And then the brush he might just be associating with, Ooh, I don't like this. Um, so what you could do is find an area that he doesn't really mind. Like for Zoe, that's usually her legs. And so you could just start there or, um, you know, maybe it's his haunches or his shoulder. Shoulders tend to be a little bit, um, you know, that gives them the most opportunity to want to walk away because that's kind of the first thing they move. So as always, the goal is to set them up for success. So find an area where you know that you can brush and they will stand. And if you don't have an area, maybe you just hold the brush and click and treat and let them check it out, click and treat, stand next to them, click and treat, lift your hand without the brush near their shoulder or wherever your target area is and click and treat. And then have the brush in your hand and slowly work up to getting closer and closer to them with it so that they really understand that all they have to do is stand still while you um, go to brush. So I think that that about answers that question. I hope Um, I'm going to move on to question four from patron Tosh. Um, I got my first uh, horse hawk, now 14-year-old, off the track thoroughbred, as already retired in January of 2019. I've done some positive reinforcement with him and had great success ever since. After being let down with several potential companions for him, I finally bought my second horse, Doug, who is now a 5-year-old OTTB, and they live together around on around two acres and are out 24-7. When I got hawk, he was labeled as aggressive with rugging, feeding, picking up his feet, and even other horses. I've helped him a lot with these issues. Uh, but we still have a long way to go, particularly with the rug issue. As soon as I got home, he had a chiropractic evaluation and uh, treatment and was told 
that his sacroiliac joint was causing him pain from a fall on the track, potentially. Uh, from being ridden cross-country and without proper retraining once off the track. After this, he had the physio out many times where she determined he isn't in pain there anymore nor anywhere else on his back, but he's still extremely sensitive to having a rug on. It's better when I'm clicking and rewarding every step, but overall the issue is still as bad as when I got him. He's happy and fine once it's on, but doing up those chest drops is obviously very distressing for him to the point where he is reaching back and burying his teeth at me, pinning his ears. This is a vast difference to the sweet, lovely boy he was, uh, or he usually is. Could this just be due to the memory of the pain that this has caused him or something more underlying? How could I help him here? So uh, there's a second part to Tasha's question, but um, I want to tackle this one first. So yeah, it sounds a lot like what Peyton's dealing with, with um, Hawk and, not Hawk, Falcon. Same, why do you have so many bird horses? <laughs> um, but uh, it just sounds like remembered pain to me, especially if it went on for a really long time. He's 14, and if he was ridden off the track and then ridden pretty hard in a second career without having those issues dealt with, and uh, it would stand to reason that when people blanketed him before you, uh, that they weren't really considerate and were just like, oh, he's such a jerk when you put a blanket on. Um, so that memory might be really strong. And it's great that you've done all the chiropractic work and um, treating that because that is really the that's really what's going to you know get you guys on the right track is having that pain eliminated first and then working toward um, getting him comfortable with the bridle again or the bridle the blanket again and or rug where depending on where you're from uh so i think that the best thing to do would be to take a day where you don't have to have the blanket on like within the next 10 minutes you know (laughs) don't don't do it the night that you know it's about to get i don't know 30 below and (laughs) go try to put the blanket out on as soon as you can while you're both freezing I would, um, you know, find a time where you've got, you know, 30 minutes to just hang out and, you know, just get used to him being around the blanket and that think good things come from it. Um, something I do, uh, especially with things that aren't particularly distressing for horses, like a blanket, <laughs> you know, I mean, some of them might just pin their ears and tuck tail and run when they see one, but if he's not doing that, you could just fold the blanket up, put it on the ground and have him eat off of it. Just like put some treats on it. And just like the blanket overall is a good thing. And you could hang it up and have him target it and uh, do a lot of things so that he gets really comfortable being around it. And the thing itself is a positive association. And then you can work on without the blanket, walking up to him and just kind of like lifting your arms up as if, you know, you were doing anything with a blanket, like kind of mime it and pretend like you're doing up blanket straps and chest straps and just getting him used to you being in those areas and making sure you can walk all the way around him and he stands and he he's chilled out. He's not worried about trying to back up to get the treat or anything like that, that he knows you're going to bring it to him no matter what. And then you can switch to maybe using a saddle pad and going about it that way and starting there and just kind of getting the saddle pad all over him and everything like that. Um, obviously, the other thing to consider that I forgot to mention is um, 
the ulcers. I don't think you touched on that in this message, but that could be a huge part of it. So I would really make sure that he's not ulceric because that could definitely play into this. And interestingly, I forgot to mention this at the beginning as well, that um, Zoe has this problem too. She really does not like being blanketed and I have not taken the steps to get her where I'd like to be, but mostly because we live in Arkansas and it doesn't really get that cold and she has a full winter coat now, so I hardly ever have to blanket her. And usually when I do, I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be like, you know, nine degrees outside tonight. I need to put a blanket on her. I can hear the Canadians laughing at me, but she's a Southern horse. She's not used to it either. So, um, you know, I, I just, it's, it's always a, oh my God, I got to do it right now. And instead of prepping for it, which is what I need to do. But, uh, another thing that I did is I recently tried to do a photo shoot with her and I was going to make her into a ghost, <laughs> and I cut out the eye holes and the ear holes and everything, and she looks so cute, but then I had, like, three people tell me she looked like she was in the KKK, and I was like, oh my god, no, I can't post those. That's awful. That's not what I want to do at all, and I didn't know that they, they used to, like, dress up their horses, too. That's ridiculous. Freaking racist, ruining everything for everyone always. Um, so those pictures will never surface to the internet, but uh, they do exist. And I, I just hate that. It makes me very sad because she was cute, but she was so good. And that brings me to another point is after you do the saddle pad, you could use a sheet, like not a horse sheet, but just like a regular blanket and fold it up, make it small and put it on him and then gradually kind of let it out and make it a little bit bigger. And that way it's lighter. So it's not going to like pull on his hair or anything like that. There's not going to be a lot of friction or static and you can sort of work up from there and get used to like, you know, tossing it over his back and rubbing it on him and maybe tying it up front or something just so that he gets used to all of the things that you'll have to do with a regular blanket. And then after that, you can work up to the regular blanket. Something else that, uh, like I said, with the static might be contributing is Zoe, she, uh, she gets very staticky. <laughs> and that has always been a big problem for us because I think that's what started, well, I don't know, it might have been the ulcers, but I noticed it was really bad when I could hear the static that she would just like stomp in place uh, with all four feet <laughs> and swish her tail and grit her teeth like so loud you could hear it going like grinding. And so there, I think people, some people use hairspray, I think. There are lots of like anti-static things you can use um, to either spray on them or on the blanket before you put it on. That way you're just mitigating anything that could be potentially bothersome. And then work up to where you're actually putting the blanket on. And um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it with that one. Just really breaking it down even further. Like, it's one thing to break it down with just the blanket, but using other things that mimic it that um, do the same things but are in smaller increments can be really helpful for things like that. So hope that's helpful. The second part of Tasha's question is, um, how would you deal with a horse that had a long history of cribbing slash wind sucking? The five-year-old Doug was gifted to me by someone who couldn't afford to keep him, and she hadn't fed him anything substantial except f about five kilograms, which is 11 pounds of hay, um, which he had to fight other horses away for. He was really underweight. That was my neck, sorry. <laughs> um, but she also didn't tell me he would crib bite. He only does it on metal bars, and I have two metal gates on either side of my property, one of which I can't keep him away from. My other horses 
doesn't and has never done this with me at least but both boys are out 24 7 with access to shelter pasture and hay he doesn't show discomfort when being palpated or girthed or anything he is now on a high fiber balanced diet so i'm sure this is just a really long-standing habit of his but obviously it has some massive scary healthy implications and yes it does (laughs) it definitely does you definitely don't want to get the colic or the teeth problems and things like that and um they usually, a lot of people will go for crib collars, and I see the reasoning, and I think I would only go for that if I exhausted everything else, because cribbing is usually, it's, it usually starts as an anxious habit, and then it kind of turns into an addiction where the horses need to do it, otherwise they get anxious, it's, they need an outlet, like, if you are really anxious and about to go over the top and you were being forced to sit still and you couldn't move your body at all, you would feel like you're about to explode. Like you need an outlet to move your leg or your hip or pick your cuticles like I'm doing right now. Oh my God. Um, So uh, it's great that he's out all the time and he's got pasture and hay and he's not showing that he's, uh, you know, palpating for uh, ulcers or anything like that. So Uh, All of that sounds great, and it sounds like you've done everything you can to mitigate it with, you know, environment. Uh, But they do make products like uh, slow hay feeders that are little, like these little balls. They kind of look like big soccer balls, and say where the black patches would go, they would have hay. And those can be really enriching for horses because they have to kind of like chase it around and really work to get the hay or alfalfa out or whatever and I have one for Zoe I just never fill it up because I'm lazy and they also have ones that you can put like alfalfa pellets in that only have like one drop hole so the horses have to really nudge nudge it around and that can be really enriching and he might find that that uh, kind of replaces the desire to crib it's really just about having an alternative and some really interesting things that he can get into that would sort of replace the cribbing. So I think that's about what I got. I know there are lots of equine behaviorists on Facebook that make posts about it, and I'll see if I can find one. I know I just I just found one uh, that talked about cribbing, and I'll see if I can link it in the show notes in the description. But sometimes cribbing is just one of those really hard things that it just it just is the horse. And some of them, especially the older ones, you, you can do everything in the book and still have a horse that cribs. And I'm not trying to discourage, but also like, I don't know, I think your best bet, at least at the beginning, is going to be seeing it, if you can decrease the time that he spends cribbing by giving him something else to do that's really interesting and kind of lets out that need to, I don't know, I don't know even know what that would be, like need to get that release. I would say it's almost comparable to smoking, that you just need and crave that dopamine kick. And if he's getting that from somewhere else, like engaging his seeking system with the slow feeders that I mentioned, that that might help mitigate that. Um, so that's what I have to say about that. Um, and also I, I should clarify that I'm not like 
100% against people using cribbing collars. I understand that there are health implications of cribbing and that it is often quite necessary to <laughs> make sure that behavior stops. But I, I would really want to use it as a last resort because sometimes it can almost exacerbate the problem when the horse doesn't have an outlet and then they experience pain every time they try to get that outlet and it can sort of work against you. And then, you know, the, the problem pops out somewhere else, whether in ulcers or in behavioral problems. Um, but that's not true for every horse. It's, it's really independent or, uh, individual. Okay. So the next question comes from an anonymous patron. This is our question number five. There's a few in here, and fair warning, this question is quite long, and this is the one that is about equine shivers. So I, prior to recording this episode, knew little to nothing about shivers, and I spent quite a while, oops, sorry, today and yesterday researching it. And I have linked a ton of links in the descriptions, uh, but I'll get to that later. So I'm going to go ahead and read the patron's question. So this first part is a bit of an explanation for context of my first question. I emailed you a, fun, a few months back relating to someone else writing him and your advice was really helpful. And I'm happy to say that uh, you, that really helped both me and my horse, uh, which is awesome. Thank you. I have also moved Barnes to one where it's so much more relaxed and he's 100% happier. So thank you so much. That being said, since taking back control over my own horse a uh, a bit more. A few issues have come to light. The first question I have concerns an issue I thought he had, but didn't question while I was being told what I was being told until getting my confidence back. Then once I did, I looked into it more and got him looked at. Long story short, my horse, who is a 13-year-old Belgian warmblood, has shivers in both front legs, the left being worse than the other. His front legs shake when he picks them up, and he really struggles to hold them up. He also has white line disease, which I'm doing my best to treat. I already changed his feed to one with low sugar when I first bought him six months ago, but I'm having to treat it with lotion. Uh, so here is really my first question. Okay, so I'm going to pause here and first talk about white line a little bit. So the Humble Hoof podcast has an episode on white line disease, and it is an incredibly helpful episode that talks about what products to use that are the most effective for treating it kind of quickly. And... I think that would really help because I, I don't want to say something that's wrong, but I'm pretty sure there is an apple cider vinegar soak that works really well for things like that and thrush, but I couldn't tell you how long you're supposed to do it for, what percentages of apple cider vinegar and everything, so definitely listen to that podcast episode about it, uh, but that might be easier for him than trying to pick his feet up and put stuff in it, so definitely check that out, and also, for those of you that don't know, white line disease, typically, it, it really means kind of like it and thrush are quite similar in my mind that it's just microorganisms that feed on dead tissue or unhealthy tissue. So when you have a horse that, you know, it usually happens when you go from like a dry to a wet to a dry to a wet to a dry environment. And when the horse's hooves get wet, they kind of become spongy and expand. And then when it dries, they kind of, they contract and you can kind of lock in those microorganisms that feed on that dead tissue when they uh, have expanded. But if the horse has a diet that is low in sugar and low in starch, which is having low NSC. So if you don't know, NSC stands for non-structural carbohydrate, and that just means your starches and your sugar. So if you look at your feed tag and you see starch and sugar, there will be a percent by each of those. Add them together, and the lower the better. <laughs> if it's under 10, you can clap your hands and stomp your feet. It is 
hokey pokey time because, oh my God, that's so good. But any higher than like 24, you really should back it off, uh, especially if you're having feet problems with your horse because it's really, a horse's bodies are just not designed to process sugar and a lot of carb uh, type Thanks. Yep. Good. Intelligent. Um, so be sure that that is low, which is what this patron has done. And that is incredible because that'll really go a long way as far as fixing that. And also making sure that he's not just stuck in mud all the time, which is rare. But uh, like here in Arkansas, it, it tends to go from wet to dry to wet to dry really often. And since switching our horses to a really low NSC feed, we haven't had hardly any problems with that. Some horses still do, but we are just doing our best to mitigate that. And you also have to balance with the trace minerals of zinc and copper and make sure you're not uh, accidentally overloading with iron. But typically, the thrush white line treatments aren't super fantastic at helping treat the issue. It's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on it. And in that episode that I mentioned earlier from the Humble Hoof, they talk about how Thrushbuster kind of perpetuates the issue because those microorganisms feed on dead, unhealthy tissue, which is what happens when the horse doesn't have a great diet. So then you put Thrushbuster, the purple stuff, you know, you, we all know what I'm talking about, and you put that in there, but it is really caustic. So it kills the microorganisms, but it also kills the good tissue. So then you have dead, unhealthy tissue again, and then those microorganisms come back. So that's what we're trying to avoid. So yes, it can work and help, but if you don't change the root issue, it's not going to go away. So um, props to the patron that just gave me a platform to kind of talk about that a little bit more. Um, but here's the first question. So how would you go about training a horse to do something they honestly don't want to and struggle to do? He has a reason to not want to pick it up, but it's something I'll never be able to fully fix. I feel horrible asking him to pick them up, but it's also not something I can't not ask him just to treat his feet in general hoof maintenance. Do you have any tips or advice for this situation? I'm implementing positive reinforcement with, but with this situation, I just don't know how to approach it with him. So, um, this is the first part of their question. So it's from what I read, the horses that have shivers have a really hard time picking their feet up. And it usually, from my understanding, affects the back legs. And it's really common in bigger breeds like this is a Belgian warm blood, you said, I believe. Yes, 13 year old Belgian warm blood. Typically, they start to show symptoms around five, from my understanding. And it is sort of a degenerative kind of disease. It's usually, well, they think that it might have some genetic components and it's typically affects the bigger breeds. And yeah, it's something in their brains. I, I forget exactly what I've read, but I'll link it all down below so you guys can look into it if it's something you're interested in. But uh, these horses have a really hard time backing up and organizing themselves because they have a part of their brain that is defective, for lack of a better word. And that is where I feel like 
Um, you know, there are a couple different routes you can go with this. From everything I read, they said for hoof care, sedation is probably going to be your best bet. There were some other options like using a really good hoof stand that the horse can kind of lean into and using a, a sling perhaps, but that gets really tricky, especially if you don't own the barn and, you know, you don't have like a crane <laughs> or something to help uh, lift the horse a little bit so that they don't have to balance themselves. You would also have to make sure that the horse is comfortable with that, which might require sedation at first um, or a lot of training. And so those are some options. Obviously, I don't think most people would go for the sling option, but having uh, a hoof stand that you could work with might be beneficial. I think I have a hoof stand. It's called Hoof It, Hoof Dash It. And that one seems to be a bit better support-wise. I don't know how tall it goes, but there might be a way to like, you know, almost give him like a prosthetic while you're working on his feet so that he can put his weight on it. Um, you know, that might be something you can work towards. And I'll be completely honest. I have never worked with a horse that has any sort of neurological um, issue like that. But I think that there are ways you can work around it. And I know it's got to be super hard working with him when he clearly doesn't want to do it and he has good reason. But, you know, you do have to take care of his feet. And I know from reading that Pete Ramey book, it's called Making Natural Hoof Care Work for You. He talks about the horses that were severely navicular and couldn't pick up their feet um, or foundered that uh, he would work on them while their feet were on the ground. But obviously that really depends on your hoof care professional and how they're willing to work with you and your horse. And yes, so that's that part of it. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I can think about. Um, I think everything else I want to say we'll get into in the next part of this question. So I'm going to go ahead and continue reading uh, their message. This next part is a bit complex. It's pretty much broken me trying to figure out and have cried over and over how to deal with it in the best way for my horse. Please, if you have no idea or can't, as you have, uh, haven't seen him, please let me know. Um, so second question needs a bit of background. He went lame a few months ago and I've only had him six months and he passed a five stage vetting when I bought him. I got my vet out and he suggested it was just due to lack of fitness as he was show jumping when I bought him and super fit. I didn't find this as an acceptable answer. So I got out another vet who referred us to a special specialist a few hours away and he felt there were certainly a few causes for concern. At the specialist, this is where we found the shivers confirmed. Though it was explained as very mild and should never get to a point where he would need to be put down with the issue. While they, while there, they found that he had arthritis in his neck and both stifles, which they think is causing the lameness. They did a CT scan on his neck to see the extent of the damage. Luckily, the damage uh, mostly on his neck was something we could deal with. At C6 and C5, some narrowing had occurred and the rest of the arthritic changes in his neck were changes not, uh, were outwards, not inward pressure. So... He has had injections in his neck and stifles, and the specialist said if these injections work, they won't need to be done again. However, this is in conjunction with him needing to be kept at a high level of fitness to cope. He was being ridden an hour a day, seven days a week when I first bought him, so these weren't light sessions. So the first thing I'll say about um, injections, like, I'm not anti-injection. I think they can be extremely helpful, but you can also do things in their diet to help reduce inflammation. 
uh, a lot of, I think there are some feeds that have like hyaluronic acid and stuff in them. I could be totally wrong on that, but lots of, there are lots of products that work in anti-inflammatory, um, type realms. And I think it wouldn't be too hard to do some research and figure out which products really worked. Some of my favorite products come out of, uh, stride animal health. They have a lot of really awesome, uh, like well-researched products. And you can also listen to the feed room chemist. Uh, the host talks a lot about the supplements and what sorts of vitamins and minerals and nutrients and amino acids and things like that all work to help mitigate some of those issues and reducing his inflammation, I think is really going to be key. Another thing that I read when I was uh, doing a little bit of research into shivers was that vitamin E seems to play somewhat of a role. They once thought that having a high fiber or high fat diet and having low starch, low sugar diet was, uh, you know, would help with the shivers. But it seems that there is a lot of uh, comorbidity in horses that have shivers and horses that have PSSM. So that kind of diet really helps horses with PSSM. But uh, from the studies that I read, there is really no correlation with that and shivers. So I, I mean, as a baseline, I would say that having a low sugar, low starch diet would really help a horse like this because it's going to decrease that inflammation and it's going to keep his stomach happy. So I, I don't see a problem <laughs> with going ahead and doing that anyway. If anything, I, I don't think it would hurt at all, but um, that might be something to consider. But they did say that vitamin E is really helpful with things like that. And you can do a vitamin E test. They said to like keep it out of the sun and spin it as soon as you can. That's a bit above my pay grade, <laughs> but uh, that way you get an accurate test and then you can supplement with high vitamin E. Uh, obviously, don't get too much because, you know, too much is not always better. But in horses like this, it seems to really help because it's a neurological problem um, that affects the muscles. So anyway, proceeding on with the question here. It's left me many nights crying, trying to figure out how I'm supposed to help keep a horse at that level of fitness their entire life. Will he just deteriorate and need to be put down when he can no longer be kept fit? How do I keep my horse's own rights to say no if I'm being told to force him into this level of work to keep him sound? I have cried and cried over this and I am at a loss. I couldn't find a good answer anywhere and my bets are like, yeah, just get him fit. But he's so much happier now being allowed to voice, voice his opinions. While I certainly don't use positive reinforcement fully, I try my very best to be as kind as I can. If he spooks, I don't get after him. If he wants to graze while we go for walks, that's fine. I'll wait till he moves on. I accept his actions, have reasons, and allow them, and I would love to fully use positive reinforcement, but I'm still learning, and I don't feel confident enough to use it all the time and not do it wrong. I'm honestly not sure if you get a structured question, so let me summarize. Have you ever dealt with a horse that is needing to be kept super fit and in seven days a week hard work to be kept sound? Do you feel that there might be a different way to approach the situation where I can continue my journey into putting my horse first and allowing him to have choices but while keeping him sound? Do you know of any academic journal, journal articles written on this? I'm currently doing my master's in history, and while I can find stuff for that, I'm useless at non-history topics, and I don't know where to start looking. The more information uh, I get, I feel I can better make the best decision for him. 
And by sound, I don't just mean able to be ridden. If the vet told me he could be comfortable and happy not ridden and being out in his field living his best life and just doing in-hand groundwork, I would do it in a heartbeat. But the way it's been explained, he needs to be fit to be able to physically cope and live a happy, healthy life. I made it very clear to the specialist when he was doing all the scans that if he would need to be out of work for good, that's what I would do. And he would have a home till his last breath, no matter the outcome. So as far as I'm aware, what I'm working with is on an assumption that he needs to be kept fit to compensate for the arthritic changes that he just has to deal with in his everyday life. That as I took him out of his high level of fitness, he was no longer able to compensate for the weaknesses he had, which is why he went lame. I just want to be, just want him healthy and happy, but trying to figure out how exactly to do that with all these things at once is looking so impossible. So yeah, that is the end of that question. Very long question, but I think it was all important to be able to talk about this. So from my understanding of shivers, and do not worry, dear patron, I have found a bunch of academic articles, and it seems to clue Equine LLC. Um, it's, I think it's Dr. Audrey DeClue, DVM. She is incredible with horses that have shivers. And I listened to an episode of, um, her being interviewed on the Come Along for the Ride podcast. And she talked a lot about how she just like was working in her own little bubble and was able to help all these horses and didn't realize that nobody else has been able to help them. And so they started doing a bunch of studies on it. And so I've linked, oops, knocking things over. So I've linked some articles on their, um, their study that they did. They did a three dimensional kinematic motion analysis of shivers and horses, a pilot study. So it's only a pilot study, but she's been doing these treatments for a while from what I understand take a shot every time I say from what I understand. I just want to make sure you guys know I'm not a vet. I don't, I don't know everything about this, but this is what I gathered. And, uh, she talked a lot about, um, the things that she does. And that podcast is not top to bottom, but the good news is Audrey does have her own podcast, which is called the horse first podcast. And there are, uh, I think three episodes on it. There's history of shivers, string halt syndrome, shivers and string halt part two, and equine shivers treatment and information. So I think that would be a really awesome place to start. As far as I'm aware, they're not available on Spotify, but I did find them on Apple Podcast and on decluequine.com. It's decluequine. And so you can find it there and listen to them just straight from her site and get some information that way. I haven't listened to them. I didn't have time, but um, from listening to the episode that she did on the Come Along for the Ride podcast, it sounds like she has got a lot of information to put out there. And her website is full of PDF documents, and I'm sure they pair nicely with the podcast, uh, kind of like a lecture format. So I would definitely check those out, and they'll be linked in the description. And if you have trouble accessing them, just shoot me an email and I'll send you the list. But th- that's what I found um, for things like that. And it seemed like all of them said, none of them really mentioned arthritis that I saw. I could have missed it, but I didn't see anywhere that they mentioned um, that comorbidity. But they did say um, that the horses that have shivers, it seems like the worst thing you can do for them is keep them stalled and limit their movement. So it is really best to keep them fit and in shape. And I know that in your question, you said that, you know, you want to be able to maintain his rights and 
you know, keep him healthy and allow him to have a voice. But at the same time, you have to do these things. And I think it's one of those situations like I think you're justified in taking the reins a little bit, so to speak, pun intended, and, you know, doing what you need to do to make sure that you're ensuring his longevity because he can't possibly understand it. And, you know, it might be difficult at the beginning, but I have no doubt with the amount of compassion it sounds like you have for him that you completely have the ability to be able to work with him in a way that he'll still enjoy, but keep him at that fitness level that he needs to be comfortable and successful. And that that reminds me of another thing that I wanted to bring up is that a lot of people really enjoy using um, they're kind of like gymnastics mats, but I think there's actually, it's, oh my God, what is it called? It's like a physio pad for horses and they can stand on it and it works on proprioception and you can get different, um, uh, different densities of the pads and, um, hold on, physio pad. I think it's called like Surefoot, Surehoof, um, yes, Surefoot. It's called Surefoot Equine, and they have these these pads that come in all different densities and everything, and they're all about um, helping the horse rewire their um, neural pathways and create new connections so that they can get to a point where their body is moving correctly. Because even in horses that don't have neurologic problems a lot of it's just like us, you know, if you have a serious injury to say your ankle or something and you're you've limped for a month, your whole body's going to be out of whack. When even when you can walk again, you've compensated for so long, your body's remembering that and it's still moving incorrectly. So until you do some physical therapy and get yourself back on track and moving balanced and rewiring your brain to work the way it's supposed to again, um, you know, you're going to be imbalanced and you're going to start creating pain in other areas. So that's what these pads do. And when I was at the Ida Hammer Clinic, interestingly enough, she actually talked about using it to see where the horses were comfortable with their um, feet and what kind of trim they wanted, which I thought was really interesting because like if they needed more heel, they might sink their toe. And if they needed less heel, they might sink their heel. And so I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. And so, and by needed more toe, I didn't mean like long toes are the bane of everybody's existence from my understanding. But, um, you know, if they needed more sink in the heel, a shorter heel, which is typically what they need anyway. Um, but yeah, so I think that might be something to look into. Uh, like I said, they're called Surefoot Equine. Um, they have a Facebook page and uh, a website where you can look in the pads. Fair warning, they're pretty expensive, but I... I think I would like them better. I've been looking into getting one for a while, but they have so many different densities that it's it's kind of hard. I just want the whole package, but I can't afford it. It's like a thousand bucks. But they, they sell them individually, so you can get um, just kind of like the ones you need. They also have one that's double-sided, so it's kind of thicker on one top and soft softer on the bottom on the other side. So, you know, there's lots of things going on, but that might be something to invest in. And I think they tend to be a little bit better 
than, say, getting like a gymnastics mat, which I know a lot of people use for proprioception. Uh, but those are really hard to, because you don't know what density you're going to get. And then you spend a hundred bucks on something that you're like, okay, I didn't know this was going to be like this, you know? So, um, they're also doing webinars. I'm looking at that right now. They have, um, they have some webinars scheduled for the 27th through the 19th, and I'm assuming they're probably going to be on Facebook. So definitely look into that. And, uh, you know, there's like, um, Panther equine or not Panther equine Panther flows with Kathy, um, on Instagram, her handle is Panther flows and she does a movement course. And I'm also taking one right now that I'm supposed to be doing a lot more for than I am right now, but I've been so busy. I haven't had time. Um, but it's called mastering movement. It's with Cara Musgrave. So I can't vouch for either of them, but I have heard incredible things about Kathy's course. And like I said, I'm taking Cara's right now. So, um, I'll know shortly, but yeah. So, um, just like learning how to help him work with his body, I think will be your best bet. And I know that sounds really vague and ambiguous, but if you can get a good physio that can help him and help relax his muscles and make sure that he is physically healthy, then you can start working on helping his brain maybe make some new connections in there. And like I said, I am not entirely sure that any of what I'm saying has any (laughs) validity, but that is the way that I would approach it at least. And, you know, maybe you could even reach out to um, Audrey DeClue and see what she thinks after listening to, you know, some of her podcasts and reading over her material that she has available online and her studies, which are all everything that I have linked below. You don't have to have like um, a college login or anything to get into. They're all open access. So you can look at everything without any trouble. So I think that that would probably be your best bet. And that way you could figure out what she's done to help work all of these horses. Cause she said she hasn't met, she has only met one horse that she couldn't get back to being ridden comfortably. And, um, I think there were, she got to asymptomatic. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what she said. Um, so, and the one horse it had a freak accident. So, Um, you know, I think that speaks a lot to what she's doing. And I think it's definitely worth looking into, especially with something as convoluted as shivers. There's not really a whole lot of information out there. But yeah, so I think that pretty much covers that. I did a I researched longer than I talked about it, which kind of sucks. <laughs> but I, I really think the research will speak for itself um, and hold a lot more weight than me trying to poorly, you know, summarize it all. And there's a lot of videos in there. There's a lot of articles, a lot of magazine articles written by uh, vets that study this. So, you know, I don't know, it might be worth something to look into if you're interested. But I think that wraps up that question. So let us get into number six with patron Emily. So this is the one that I want to go ahead and give you guys a bit of a trigger warning because it does touch on some depression and suicidal tendencies and mental health. And if that is something that is triggering to you or, you know, might kind of just set you off on the wrong path for today, then maybe just in this episode here and, uh, you know, check back in next week. I just, I... And if you do proceed to listen to it, 
you know, just make sure that if you ever feel a little bit uncomfortable or something gets a little weird and you start feeling not quite right, just take a break and come back, check in with yourself, see how you're going and, um, you know, make sure everything's all right. You know, I just, I don't want anybody to, you know, get put off by this. So, uh, but I do feel like it is a really important thing to talk about because I did debate reading this question because I I wasn't sure if it was something that needed to be read out loud, but I think a lot of people will be able to relate. And I think Emily was brave enough to share this. So, um, and you know, it's not super graphic or anything like that, but it it does touch on something that I think a lot of people have experienced. So if you are triggered by anything like that, just either proceed with caution or just go ahead and check out of this one. Okay. And we're going to get into it. Hey, Jill, I own a 19 year old off the track thoroughbred and we're coming up on our fifth anniversary. He is literally my lifeline and best friend and our riding situation is tricky. We don't have a proper arena. We just ride on grass and the ground isn't the most even. I do struggle with depression, anxiety, etc. So sometimes I am really in my head when I ride and don't pay uh, attention or appreciate the effort my horse is giving me. He can give me a great ride, but I get off feeling horrible and discouraged because I'm focusing on small inconsistent moments. My trainer lives out of town, so I only have lessons when she is in town, so it's inconsistent. I'm just wondering if I should take a step back and just hang out with him. I feel pressured to ride, so we stay in shape, but I don't always want to ride, and I'm very self-aware, and I know that I will get frustrated and depressed. On another side note, this is kind of dark, but I am coming out of a place of wanting to end my life. And it was about a week long mindset. So I don't know if I just need to take a break. That sounds bad, but I will snap out of it out of nowhere because I am taking out my or but I will snap out of nowhere because I'm taking issues out on my horse. I honestly don't know, lol, this question turned into a mental illness spiel. But I'm essentially wondering if you think I should take a break or have more relaxing rides. We mainly focus on dressage right now. Also, I'm deathly afraid of him dying on me suddenly, so when I emotionally push him away or go a day without seeing him, I feel so horrible, but then I also get overwhelmed when I am near him sometimes. I don't know, is this weird or am I losing it? He's a perfect horse and so willing and sweet, no flaws, I am just so in my head. Again, this isn't horsey and I apologize, but I just want to get your opinion. Thanks. So that is obviously a very heavy question, and the first thing I want to say is, Emily, I am incredibly sorry that you're going through this because I have been there and I I just know how hard this is. It is incredibly difficult to deal with things like this. But the good news is we all have the power within ourselves to make a change. And that sounds like the worst advice ever because when you're depressed, the last thing you want to do is put effort into anything. But that is, that's, that's what helps. And I think one of the best things my therapist ever told me about depression was that she really just kind of reframed it in my mind for me. And this will not go for everyone, especially depending on the, you know, reason or perhaps lack thereof, of your depression, uh, if you experience it. But she, mine was largely situational because I was going through a really, really awful rough breakup. And um, she was just like, you know, it sounds like your body just needs some more time to process and think and grieve. And I was like, I feel fine. I don't get it. Like, what is the problem? And she was like, you know, there just might be something else you need to sort out before you're ready to move on into something else. And um, that's exactly what happened. Like, 
I just kind of went through it for maybe another week or two. And then out of nowhere, it just completely vanished and I was fine. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> it was it was weird because it had been going on for about a year. And just one day out of nowhere, it was all the way gone because I think I finally dealt with everything that I had to deal with. And it sounds really ambivalent, once again, that keeps coming up and ambiguous and all over the place. But um, I just, I think that's kind of the nature of depression anyway. It's, it's something that, you know, it doesn't make sense because you feel bad and there's a lot going on. And sometimes you don't even understand why you're depressed. There's not really a trigger. And it's just this awful, sinking, ugly feeling that you can't really find your way out of or find a reason for. And then you get frustrated because there's no reason and you have all these things you want to do and you can't do them. And then you start beating yourself up. Oh, I'm so lazy. I suck. I'm terrible at all the things I want to do. I can't even make myself do them. And then you just spiral down into this awful abyss. And so I promise I have been there and I have experienced it and it is absolutely horrible. I wouldn't wish it on literally my worst enemy. But I think that if you can find a way to um, develop some coping strategies with it and some self-soothing techniques and ways to help reframe what's going on, I think that that is the most impactful thing that one can do. And the best way to do that and try not to turn the podcast off right now is to go to therapy. And it sounds awful and hard, especially when you're depressed because you're like, oh my God, the last thing I want to do is go talk to somebody about why I'm depressed because it's just going to make it worse. But um, I think one of the big things is that whatever you think is going to happen or you're fearing the most about happening is what tends to manifest anyway. And if all you're concentrating and you're only dedicating your energy to is um, you know, how awful things are going to be and the way things are going to go wrong and, um, you know, just everything that's so bad and awful, if that's all you're concentrating on, that's all you, your body and your mind can prepare for. I've said it so many times on this podcast. It's like the pink elephant thing. Don't think about a pink elephant. And unless you have aphantasia, and I do know I have one listener who does, hi, um, but unless you have aphantasia, all you can think about is a pink elephant. And it works the same way with negative emotions. If you're only concentrating on the bad things and the things that are going wrong in your life or the things that could go wrong, then that's all that's going to be what you see. That was terribly uneloquent. But if you if all of your field of vision is tainted black, even the good things are going to be black. And if you start working towards slowly looking for the good in the things that happen around you and focusing on that instead of the bad things, then you can get to a place where even the bad things are tainted blue or pink or whatever your favorite color is that you associate with good. Um, maybe yellow. <laughs> But I think it's it's really powerful to be able to, um, you know, shift that mindset. And don't get me wrong at all. When my therapist and I first started working on this, I had so much resistance to it. I did not want to do it at all. And then I, it occurred to me, I was like, why, why don't I want to think about good things? And I was like, why am I so resistant to wanting to see the good in the world around me and the good in other people and be happy? And I think for me, it's a vulnerability issue because when you're 
looking at the happy things and life is going well and you get kind of on a high, you have further to fall. But if you're already at the very bottom and everything sucks anyway, all the bad stuff can't hurt you because you're already at rock bottom. But, you know, in 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 order to be happy, you have to come out of that a little bit and then you're creating some space to fall. But the great thing about vulnerability is that even if you have that space to fall, that's not how you see it. And you just end up not falling anyway. You have a parachute, so to speak. So, you know, it's, it's like, I'm reading this question back, and you're talking about how, um, you know, when you ride, you get really in your head, and you don't pay attention to your horse and the effort he's giving you. Um, But it sounds like you are paying attention to the effort he's giving you, because you wouldn't notice that he's giving you any effort at all, unless you were paying attention. Um, And I think that that's something you can give yourself some credit for, that you're noticing his effort and you do appreciate it. And the fact that you feel bad that you're not appreciating it means you do. And so and then you say to um, he can give me a great ride, but I feel I get off feeling horrible and discouraged because I'm focusing on the small inconsistent moments. The you know, it's kind of like one of those things when you go to the doctor and you say, well, my elbow hurts when I bend it. And the doctor says, well, don't bend it. Um, (laughs) and I think it's a lot harder to not bend it than you think. And depression works the exact same way. And you say, I get off feeling horrible and discouraged because I'm focusing on the small inconsistent moments. So you know why you get off feeling horrible and discouraged. So naturally, the thing to change would be to stop focusing on the small and inconsistent moments. So... There's this great metaphor that I've learned in being in the clinical mental health counseling program, and that is, um, I forget who did it, but there's there's some like little therapeutic technique of saying on your right knee, you have a button. And <laughs> my, my friend that's in the program with me is laughing <laughs> um, because we both talked about this and it's, it's really influential. And it, it, like just everyone, little experiment right now, if you're still listening, just take a moment and do this with me. So on your right knee, you have a button. So press that button with your right hand and think about five good things that are going on right now. So just list out five things. If you have to pause the podcast, go ahead and do that and come up with five things that are going really well or that you like or you appreciate. And it could just be that your new drapes are pink and they're pretty because that's all I can think of right now. But come up with five things and then come back. So I'll give you a moment. Have you got your five? Okay. Yes. Okay, we'll proceed. (laughs) So on your left knee, you now have another button. And with your left hand, you're going to press that button and think of five, not choking, five negative things. (coughs) Sorry, I'm dying. Five things that are not going well, five things that you don't like or whatever. Come up with those. So have you got them? Have you got them? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So in that moment, you demonstrate the ability to choose what you think about. When you press, when you choose to press the right button, you're thinking about the positives. And when you choose to press the left button, you're choosing to think about the negatives. And in a depressive episode, it works very similarly. We often choose to slip into talking or thinking only about the negative things. And I think it can be really powerful when you're talking to friends and family 
to notice how often you just talk about all the things that are going wrong and how much you complain and things like that. And it's not to say that you beat yourself up, but see if in that moment you could think of some things that are going well and talk about those instead. And instead of saying, uh, he can give me a great ride, but I get off feeling horrible and discouraged. You might say he gives me great rides, but at the moment I'm having some trouble really appreciating, uh, the rides and feeling, you know, like things are going well, but it's something I'm working on. That gives you an open door and a direction to go into with positive thoughts. And that's something that you're working towards. You want to feel better because everyone who rides horses wants to have a great ride and get off feeling great and encouraged. And because they're focusing on the good things and the things that are going well. And so the way to do that is to reframe how you're thinking about it. You know, in your brain, if you are thinking rides equal me feeling discouraged because I can only concentrate on the negative things, the door is shut. Everything, that is what it is. And you can't get out of it. But if you say riding equals the potential for opportunities for things for me to appreciate and opportunities for me to learn and be encouraged and enjoy my horse, those, I mean, that that gives you so much more room to work within it. And it sounds really stupid and like it will not change anything at all, but I can promise you 110%, it changed absolutely everything for me. And it may not work with everybody. This is just one technique that, um, you know, I've kind of read about and also had done on me. And I went to a CBT therapist, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, and she really helped me a lot with depression and anxiety. And instead of saying, you know, I am anxious, I am anxiety, I worked on distancing that from my identity and working towards, I'm not comfortable doing this yet, but it's something that I really want to get good at. Instead of saying, I can't go to the supermarket because it makes me anxious. Like two of those things or those two things are completely different situations with completely different outcomes. And even if you don't believe the first one, when you say it, you're, you're still focusing on not the pink elephant, you know, you're the negative thoughts are the pink elephant. And when you say, well, you know, I'm not there yet, but it's something I'm really working on. And I really want to get to the point where I'm comfortable going into the supermarket and you're able to start by first thinking about what it would be like to go in there. And if you start getting discouraged to take it back a step and be like, okay, what would I be comfortable with? And, you know, what would happen if I walked in and everybody started staring at me and like, nobody's going to explode. My head's not going to die off, you know, I'm going to die off. Yep. Um, you know, I'm not going to get poked with a bunch of pitchforks. It's just, I'm going into the supermarket and people are looking at me. That's it. And it makes everyone feel anxious when that happens, but it's normal. Your body is doing that normally for a reason. It's about survival and we're herd animals anyway. So we like to have social connections and to feel like you don't belong is really alarming at a survival level. But once you can recognize that and understand what purpose the anxiety is serving, then it, it it's fine. And the anxiety doesn't need to be there anymore. Because you're like, okay, yeah, I know I'm not getting excluded from society. I'm just walking into a supermarket and everybody's wondering what's on my shirt. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, I, I want to proceed a little bit. Uh, but I, I hope that was somewhat helpful. Um, but your your big question is, should you just stop riding? And you feel pressure to stay riding and stay in shape. And you say, I don't always want to ride because I'm very self-aware and I know that I'll get frustrated and depressed. 
And that's a similar thing to what I was just saying a second ago, that in your head, writing equals frustration and depression. And that's that's okay. And it's valid because it is, writing is very hard. There is so much that goes into it. You have to be thinking about your hands and your core and your legs and what bend the direction or bend the horses on and what direction you're going and you know what posting diagonal you're on what canter lead you're on how are you going to set the horse up for the transition like there's so much that goes into riding so naturally you're going to get frustrated there's a lot that goes into it and cut yourself a break i mean it takes a long time to develop all of your muscle memory and to get to a point where a lot of it happens automatically and you don't have to think so hard but the the bottom line is riding is supposed to be fun. We all get into the sport because we love horses and we want to do it because it's fun. Not because it's some big stressful event that sucks so bad and it makes you self-conscious and depressed and just is this horrible, awful thing that you dread. And if it is and it's not something you want to do anymore, you don't have to do it. It is a-okay to be like, you know, this just isn't my thing. I just don't feel good when I do it. And I think I can find something else that I would feel better at, at, that I would feel better when I'm doing and I would be better at. And that's okay. It's totally up to you. And it's a very personal individual decision. And if that's not the case and you do love riding and you really want to ride, then I think that there are a few ways you can approach it. Um, I would say to just kind of take the pressure off, you know, you said you feel pressure to ride. So you stay in shape, stay in shape for what? I mean, if it's staying in shape for a show, then maybe take a break from showing and just enjoy your horse and find the things that you do enjoy with him and take like pump the brakes on being competitive and getting everything done perfectly. His body has to be in this perfect position and blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, like you said, he's, 19 and depending on you know how his life has gone he might be a little bit older so maybe staying in shape for that reason um sorry i had to pop my neck um that was a burp sorry that was gross um (laughs) i had to take a break but anyway so if that's why you feel like you need to stay in shape then that's okay but i mean it would be okay to take a couple days a week to just go for a hack and a trail ride. And you know, he might be a little bit looky or a little bit spooky. And that's okay. You just I I mean, in situations like that, I think you have to make the choice to press the button on your right knee, the the button to be happy and look at the positives in the situation. And it sounds so lame. And it makes me cringe a little bit still even to talk about it. But to just like if you were to spook, just be like, Oh, my God, it's okay. We're alive. Everything is fine. It was just a dumb leaf or a you know a deer in the bushes it's okay buddy you're fine um and give him a pat and a scratch and then proceed and take a deep breath you know and just just enjoy and appreciate his smell the sounds of his hooves how soft his fur is and the clear air around you and just the connection you get with being with your horse those are all of the things that that make it worth it and um you know, I think that that is what we lose a lot when we get really competitive and we try to attain some arbitrary level of perfection because then we'll be accepted and your trainer will think you're good enough or people that watch you ride will think you're good enough. And none of that matters. All of that is being dependent on external things to make you happy 
and to alleviate your feelings of discomfort. Like the at the supermarket, you know, if you walk in and everybody starts looking at you, the solution is not that everyone else must stop looking at you or you're going to feel bad. What you have power over is your own perception and the way you think about what's going on. And if you're like, oh, they're just looking at me because I just walked in and people are naturally curious. They want to see who's coming into the environment they're in. Um, and that's fine. Like, like it's, it's okay. It's not a big deal. And, but it can seem like such a big deal in the moment. But if you're able to just zoom out and be like, okay, why am I doing this? You know, why is this so nerve wracking for me? It's just walking into the supermarket and it's not to shame yourself or put you down or anything, but to just help you regulate a little bit more and self-soothe and like logically be like, okay, I'm okay. This is good. They're just, they're just people. And they're all as uncomfortable and awkward as I am. They're just, you know, I can't see it. And understanding that is also quite helpful. But if you can get to a point where when you're riding, it's not just about being perfect, then I think you'll enjoy it a lot more. Because if all riding is about, and this is where I have a problem with competition because it did it to me too, that I have to be perfect. I have to do so well. I have to have the best equitation. I have to have the best pictures. I have to place well. And then I, I never placed well ever. <laughs> and um, except for that one first that I got on flit, it's it was like everybody i was i was waiting on everything else to make me feel better i was never taking responsibility for my own happiness and it sounds like a big deal but when you take responsibility for your own happiness you actually get happy if you're waiting on everybody else and you know if you're waiting on your horse to be perfect and your trainer to um like I would I would even venture to say that your trainer doesn't look at you like, oh, my God, you're so incompetent. You can't ride, you know, like you're waiting on something that you're waiting on something else to alleviate your self-awareness that will not ever alleviate your self-awareness, if that makes sense. So like self-awareness and um, being well, it's really more self-consciousness um, is it comes from an insecurity and feeling like, you know, other people are going to reject you or abandon you or think you're weird or stupid or wrong in any definition of the word. But the self-awareness doesn't go away with people that don't think that because most people aren't sitting there thinking that you're incompetent or you suck or things like that. So if they're not thinking those thoughts and yet you're still self-conscious, that's that's not fixing the problem. You're counting on something to fix the problem that is not fixing the problem. I don't know how many more times I can say that. I'm just trying to be clear. <laughs> I just I feel like I'm walking in circles. But um, what fixes the problem is is you, and that's where I think therapy plays the biggest role. Because I I don't I really don't think I could have done it without my therapist. Um, and having somebody point out those things and give me some some homework to work on and realize that you know this is about me. I, I am the one that is in control of this and I have a choice when I'm on my horse and I'm riding. I can either get on her and focus on all of the things that she's doing wrong. She's counterbent. Her hip is thrown out. I can't sit up straight. I keep forgetting to look up. Oh my God, my hands are uneven. I'm pulling on one rein harder than the other. Oh my God, it's not going right. And then I have a panic attack and blow up. Um, like you said that you snap out of nowhere and take it out on your horse. I also used to do that, especially when I was younger, I had a really 
big problem with that. And um, I, that's one of the big reasons I stopped riding with a whip. I don't think I've ever actually talked about this anywhere, but um, I used to, when I was younger, I would be riding and I would, I would get to that place where I was like, nothing is going right. I can't do it. I can't do it. My horse isn't listening. This sucks. I hate it. And I would just blow up and just go to town with the whip. It was awful. And I would immediately get off and go sit in the dirt and start crying and uh, just hanging onto my horse while they're like, what are we doing? <laughs> and uh, also, thanks for just beating me for no reason. Um, and it was just, it was a horrible, horrible experience. And so I stopped riding with a whip for that reason, except at shows, because I knew I wouldn't do it at a show. But, um, and then as I got older and I grew out of that, I, I just still retained not riding with a whip out of fear that that would happen again. And that's another part of having ADHD is you, uh, really emotional <laughs> and have problems controlling that temper. And that's something that I've really had to do a lot of work on. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't see on the internet. And I think that's what plays into people that feel like this patron does, because you don't see those other people that are going through things that are so difficult and emotional and really hard to deal with. And you think you're the only one and you're weird and insane, like you said, like, am I crazy? Why am I doing this? But you're not. Everybody goes through it, I think. At least a lot of people do. And that that validation that you are okay and you are doing things right and you're allowed to just enjoy and learn and take time to learn is it comes from you and you have to be the one to tell yourself and give yourself permission that you can just take some time to learn. You can't expect to get on a horse and just know how to do everything perfectly. A, because humans are flawed and B, because horses are animals and they're naturally going to be flawed. They're naturally going to have some miscommunication with you. So you can't expect perfection. And it's really hard when all you see in media is people riding perfect horses and doing perfect things, but they're only posting their best work. Everything that goes on behind the scenes is about, you know, like 60, 40, good and bad. And you, it's, it's just about keeping that perspective. And it's not that you need to say, well, everybody else sucks too, uh, to make yourself feel better because that's still relying on that external validation. It's about giving yourself permission to be in a learning place and mess up. It's okay. You're not going to hurt your horse and you're not going to look dumb for doing something wrong. And very rarely ever does it actually look as bad as it feels anyway. So I, I just I hope that that helps alleviate some of that um, discomfort and anxiety around that sort of thing. It's I just I know how hard it is. And my heart really goes out to you, Emily, because I, that just that sucks a lot. And I hope that any of my rambling has helped somewhat. But I would really recommend um, seeking out some professional help. And I know it can be hard, especially if it's uncomfortable to talk to your parents or financial providers um, about things like that. But therapy has really been the best thing for me in that regard. I, I really don't think I would be in the place I am right now without it. And it has just made such an entirely different, like I've probably done a 180 with it because I was so bad all the time. Like I talked about, I am depressed. I have depression. I am depression. I have anxiety. I'm anxious. And it was such a part of who I was that it became like something I couldn't get out of because I was so deep in it. It was like quicksand. And I, I lost the ability to zoom out and see what I was actually doing and how I was actually thinking and taking responsibility for what I was contributing to 
um, was really hard. But then once I realized, okay, I'm contributing to this, it wasn't about blame or taking, you know, responsibility in the form of guilt, but it was like, you know, I'm doing this so I can change it. And it was hard. It was very hard to choose to think about something else. And it was really, really, really difficult to press that good thought button because it was so much easier, especially um, when I don't know how it is for everybody else. But with my particular experience with depression, I got a bunch of um, uh, I forget. I forget what the actual term for it is, but it was like unsolicited uh, suicidal and depressive thoughts. And I like I it felt like I wasn't thinking them. They would just pop into my head. and I was like, no, my God, I'm OK. We're good. And that's exactly what I did. I, I didn't shame them or judge them or d- attach any labels to those thoughts. I was just like, OK, that happened. So now I'm just going to think about some good things. I'm going to take a deep breath check my body for tension and relax. And I'm going to think about, you know, the things that are going right. And I'm going to reassure myself because I can do that and it will be okay. And you know, at the beginning, you might not believe it when you reassure yourself, but it's important that you at least put it in there because you're taking the first steps to being able to start believing it. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's totally up to you if you want to take a break with writing. Um, I, I mean, only you know, and you are the expert on yourself. So if you think that taking a break would be the best thing for you, sorry, burp again. (laughs) If you think that taking a break would be the best thing for you, I think that's what you should do. But if you think you just want to take some more relaxing rides and that would help, then I think that's what you should do. It's, it's totally up to what you feel would bring you the most happiness. And I think that that's really the biggest deal because it, from this message, it sounds like there's a lot of focus on um, the things that are going wrong with writing. So take a moment and think about the things that go right and the things that you really enjoy when they happen. And think about if they feel good because other people and the environment is... Um, you know, validating you in some way, or if it's because you're validating you. And I keep saying, and it's bothering me. Um, But just make sure that the reason the things feel good is um, because I mean, okay, you're allowed to feel good. And you're allowed to appreciate the things that feel good, because other people are telling you, you look great. Obviously, that's going to feel good. But make sure that you're balancing it with some things that just are intrinsically good for you. And that, you know, you just enjoy breathing in your horse's scent and walking through the woods or working on a jumping course or riding your dressage pattern or something, you know, whatever makes you feel good. And if you, you know, get back to riding and having a trainer and you start thinking and falling down that rabbit hole of like, oh my God, everything sucks. This is so bad. And you feel that coming on just you know, if you're in a lesson, just ask your trainer, like, hey, could I just have a moment? I just kind of need to take a, a breather. And then just take a moment and walk around and recenter yourself and concentrate on the things that are going well. It's like I said, it's really hard to press that button, but it, it is it, to some degree, it is largely a choice. And it, it can feel dangerous to press that button because you're like, well, if I don't think about all the bad things and they might happen. But On the flip side, if you don't think about the good things, they're probably not going to happen either. If you numb yourself to all of the bad, you're also numbing yourself to all of the good. So you have to be able to 
be be open to looking at the good and being okay with it. And it's not that you're being arrogant um, and that being self-conscious and insecure makes you humble because I also grew up thinking that. But if if you are like, yeah, I can do this. I am good. Like, I've got this and I'm working on it. I'm allowed to learn. It's not going to be perfect every time, but that's okay. We're still learning. Me and my horse are figuring this out together. And, um, you know, it's just, it's all up to you. And I hope that you find a way to find somebody to talk to about it. I, I just, I cannot stress enough how helpful that can be. And it is in no way admitting defeat or that you're weird or you're a psycho or anything like that, or you have these big, awful problems. I mean, for the longest time, I wouldn't go to therapy because I was like, it's not that bad. Um, and then it got that bad. And then I went to therapy and then I was like, oh, I could have done this years ago and then avoided all of that. And so, and, and the thing about therapy is you don't have to tell anybody you're going. I mean, maybe you talk to your parents and just be like, I'm feeling kind of weird. I just would like to go talk to somebody. And then when you when you get there, I mean, I should say that some therapists are maybe not your you don't click super well with them, but keep going until you find somebody that you really click with and that you think you mesh well with and you feel safe with and then work on that and get to a point where you're willing to open up and share those things and get to the root of the issues so that you can um get to a place where you're you're okay and you've acknowledged the things that scare you and that are you know maybe not going so well so that you can start to focus only on the things that are going well well maybe not only but predominantly so yeah i guess the answer to your overall question is it's up to you it totally depends and um you know i i would say don't beat yourself up about you know if you go a day without seeing him it's that's life and it sucks because I've been out of town a lot recently and not seeing my horse, it makes me feel super guilty and bad. But I have to remind myself she is just a horse. She is living her best life in her paddock with her buddies eating hay and alfalfa and grass and running around and doing things like she has got her own life and she doesn't need me to be there all the time. And like, I also totally get the sentiment of feeling overwhelmed when you're around them because you're just like, oh my God, I have so many negative emotions associated with this. I feel worthless and stressed and depressed and inadequate. And all of those feelings are not good feelings. And you kind of have to work on counter conditioning yourself to where when you're around your horse, you think about the good things. A lot of people say to like, leave your problems at the barn door. And I don't think that's necessarily, you know, the best solution. But I think you know, maybe when you go see him and you you start feeling that overwhelmed feeling, like I said, just take a break and just like hang out and be like, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I just, I need to think and just appreciate and be here in this moment and present, not thinking about the past and obsessing over the, all the things that have gone wrong. And I'm not thinking about the future and, you know, getting anxious over all of the things that might go wrong, but I'm just here enjoying this moment, appreciating it and being in it and feeling everything, seeing everything, smelling everything, hearing everything and just being really present. And I think that provides a lot of peace for a lot of people. And it does for me for sure. And it's hard to do when you're a naturally um, kind of the individual that's all over the place. Uh, but I think that that is the biggest the biggest solution or treatment to issues like this is 
learning how to take control of your mind like that. And that's, that's where therapy really comes in. And when you're working one on one with somebody who is coaching you through how to do this, um, because it's not easy, and it's not intuitive. And our society gives us absolutely no help outside of therapists to learn how to do this. There's no level of emotional regulation in schools or anything like that. You just kind of have to figure it out. And as a result, we tend to develop maladaptive coping strategies. And so all you have to do is just replace them. And that's, it's oversimplified for sure. But it's, I also take comfort in knowing that it's not a huge, like, you know, you have to go through eight months of rehab and you have to, you know, like for a physical injury, you know, it's just like, okay, we just got to fix this. And then maybe things will start going better. And then I can work on some other things. I'll start seeing some improvement. And, you know, there might be a little bit of a backslide, might get better, might get worse. But, you know, I'm good with whatever happens, because I've got me, and I'm good, and I'm confident in what's going on. And um, whatever happens in the world around me, I've got me and I'm okay with that. (laughs) And I am a good person. I am worth it. And just working on making those beliefs your truth. And um, because you deserve it, you really, really do to quote the wonderful Kirk Honda, who knows everything and anything. Um, That's your psychology in Seattle podcast. (laughs) But anyway, um, I just I hope that you don't beat yourself up too much about it because it is a very natural thing and it's it's not your fault. It is just our society and feeling pressured to be perfect and do everything correctly and how dare you ever mess up ever. Your head will explode. The world around you will explode. You'll be exiled. You know, for some reason, we all live with a little bit of that fear, but it's not cognizant. And then when you say it out loud, you're like, that is ridiculous. But then when you realize it's ridiculous, the trick is not to guilt and shame, but to be like, okay, so I'm good. And then reaffirm with the good thoughts and comfort and center yourself and then proceed. So I don't know if that made any fucking sense at all. And I sincerely apologize if it did not. I hope it did. Addie, did it make sense? She's nodding. Okay. You better not just be being kind. It better be real. Okay. It's real, ladies and gentlemen. All right. I think I'm going to wrap up this episode because holy shit, I've been talking for so long and I want to be done. (laughs) I've had a really long weekend, but... Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening, and uh, be sure to tune in next Tuesday for the next episode. You can check all my shit out on jetequitheory.com. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter at jetequitheory. The podcast is now on YouTube. All of the episodes, all of them, all of them, all of them are on YouTube. And you can watch and listen there if you are not currently. And be sure to subscribe to the channel because Homegirl needs subscribers so I can get that shit monetized. And yeah, I think that is about it. Become a patron if you want. I got merch. Now that's it. Okay. 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 (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. I'll check in with you next Tuesday. Bye.